messages in such loving um, and and thoughtful ways. Uh, and so I really do encourage you to check out her stuff. If you don't know Joe at all, if that introduction is like, oh, wow, she sounds great. I've never heard of her. You need to go and check out the prior podcast I did with Joe as well, because we go right into her journey, her personal deconstruction, her journey of um, awakening to... Um, uh, the, the the need to decolonize and all of these different things. We don't go into that in this podcast. We dive right in. I, I was excited. I was like an energizer bunny, just ready to go. And I just dove in. We had some amazing conversation. This is a great podcast. Um, you're going to love the content we get into, but we don't go into Joe's personal journey. And so if you're interested in that, you should dive back into her prior episode. It's quite far back now. I can't remember the episode, but it's early on. It's in the 30s, I think. Um, and we're now episode 98. So it's been a wee while. Um, I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with Joe. Before I do, I just want to let you know, I don't do this every podcast, but I like to do it every few podcasts so people, it's on people's radar. I do this full time. I'm talking to people on Instagram five, six hours a day, helping them in their process of deconstruction. I'm putting out research on the deconstruction community. I'm putting out these podcasts. I'm putting out other video resources. I do all of that for free. I've never charged for anything. I never will charge for anything. Um, but the nature of that and the time it involves is a very much a full-time job. I do this about 60 hours a week and um, I don't have an opportunity to make any other living. And so there are a select few of you out there that are generously giving um, a little bit of cash every month to me via Patreon, via my partner program. Um, and that helps me pay the bills. It helps me keep a roof over my head. It helps me feed me and my wife. Um, it makes a huge difference. It really, really does. Um, and so if you appreciate what I'm doing, if you enjoy all these different resources that I'm doing, the research I'm working on in, in the deconstruction community, um, the memes, whatever it is that you, you're here for, um, if you appreciate that and you are able to give, again, there's never any need to give. All of this will always be free. I'll always be here to talk to you, help you on your deconstruction journey. But if you are able to give and you do want to support what I'm doing, it make a huge difference. You can do that at patreon.com slash phildrysdale or phildrysdale.com slash partner. It's the same deal. Um, I just get a little bit more of a cut because I use the payment processor direct rather than via Patreon. Um, but either one is fantastic. As a thank you, you get access to my private um, discussion group over on Discord. Uh, we have amazing conversations. There's a, a, a very eclectic group over there, group of people that are very different and varied that are going through deconstruction. Um, and we talk about all sorts of different things. We talk about different spiritualities. We talk about atheism. We talk about how to navigate the process of deconstruction, the uncertainty of it. We talk about how to have difficult conversations with family and friends. We talk about different things in relationships, uh, polyamory and um, all sorts of different things. Um, and so if you would like something of a bit more of an intimate community, something a bit more intimate and interactive than what we have on Instagram, um, that would be an amazing resource for you. As little as five bucks a month gets you access to that. I've tried to make that so that anyone can access that. Um, I know that that's still a, um, a price for, for a lot of people that that, that, that isn't something they can uh, use as disposable income. Um, but hopefully for the most people, that, that's something that they can get. And, and it's just a little thank you for people that are generous in giving. Um, we also have a monthly Zoom call as well for those that give. Um, and this month we're doing a Christmas party. It's going to be this Sunday, Sunday the 20th. Um, so I'd love for you guys to um, be on that as well. It'd be really fun. We're going to wear our Christmas sweaters and have great chat and just banter for a few hours. Um, and so it'd be great to see you on there. Either way, though, like I said, it's always going to be free. I'm always here for you. If you need to talk, hit me up on Instagram. It's just Phil Drysdale. But for now, let's dive into the conversation with Joe Lumen. Hey, Phil. Hey, hey, how's it going? Um, so far, so good. How are you doing? 
Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I am, uh, I just got back from climbing. We just came out of lockdown uh, a couple of days ago. So my wife and I were keen to go back to the climbing wall. We, we like doing climbing and my fingers are like on fire. You know, when you've not used a muscle, but like with fingers, they just, they, they experience it a whole other level, I think. So. <laughs> Um, well, how fun that you got to go out and do something that you enjoy. Yeah, it's, it's down here, so yay. Yeah, we, I, I'm ready for a, a bit of a, a couple of friends went along as well, and so we're climbing separately, but yeah. you know, can chat a little bit, socially distance, and it's the first time seeing people in a month. It's just like, oh, it's just nice, you know. You know, eight months of limited interactions and seeing yeah. people. I think we're all feeling it i mean i'm sure feeling it we yeah. just my girls at school they never went back to school but um about a third of the school was going in okay and we we opted out we didn't want them to go but they just closed for the rest oh, of the wow. year so and the whole city is closing down because we keep getting numbers that are high and yeah I think 15% capacity in our icus so we won't open it's wild. It's really wild. And like a whole other level for you guys. I mean, the UK is doing badly, but by like global scale, kind of like, you know, we're doing badly, but like, it, it, I feel bad, but on some level, I feel almost somewhat grounded looking at America because <laughs> it's terrible. It's a very privileged position from Europe looking at America and going, oh, at least I'm not that bad. But God, yeah, it's, it's really bad over there. And I mean, at least you're in California, right? So you're in one of the better options of, of, of being in america right now you most people would be like oh I'll pick california over a lot of places sure. uh, but it's it's heartbreaking and then you see people like you know sean foyt's he did a huge crusade thing in san diego right he did a big beach thing or he did and we fought it and he had a protest permit so the city could like couldn't do anything yeah you uh, seeing a protest you know like it's just ugly all around but as as usual the u.s is leading uh you know in a negative way uh showing the yeah. world how not to do things well it's had fun. to be number one at something always always this obsession <laughs> wow does it feel like a tide is turning do you feel like there's quite a bit of hope with you know biden maybe coming in in january yeah presuming that kind of comes like do you feel like there's going to be some sort of shift or does it feel just too there's so much dualism and, and kind of like extremism that you know changing the top does that is that going to help you know you still got these protests and some things will will be better but i mean i think the damage that the trump administration has caused is going to take years you know like mm. i think it set this country back probably a decade or two um, so it's going to take years to undo, like the amount of distrust of the government, which is some of it is fair, but it's 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 the it's distrust without any facts, you know. It's the yeah. this um, what is the word uh, theories, like just conspiracy theories, the conspiracy yeah. theories and the nonsense and the amount of changes in immigration laws and in a whole bunch of things that are going to take just time. Um, a long time to change and in the meantime people's lives are actually affected like yeah. you know like some people don't have years so, yeah. so if some things will be better for sure like at least he's going to try to put a like he just already said that he's going to ask everybody to wear masks for a hundred years for a hundred days um years. <laughs> we can't do that. it feels days. like it right that just feels like this one year was a hundred years <laughs> 
Um, and I think that some people are going to be like, totally. But at the same time, Trump has emboldened yeah, people. Yeah, he has. Say, no, I don't care about you. And I'm not going to do that. So yeah. really sad. Yeah, it's such a, it's a tough dynamic. I was talking to, have you come across Corey Leak? I just recorded a podcast with him yesterday. He's, yeah. he's an awesome guy. Um, I, I, yeah, just phenomenal. And I was talking about this with him because he, obviously he's straddling this world of deconstruction, faith, uh, decolonization, uh, you know, the whole issue of race and, and, and a lot of the politics behind that. And so we were having an interesting conversation about it, but it feels like, it feels like this has kind of come out of nowhere. Now, I know that's an incredibly privileged position, especially as someone in the UK. And I've been dealing with that in my own way of going, oh, holy crap, the UK is still really racist. Like, and, and grieving the, the, the degree to which I was blind to that and a part of that and dealing with that in my own way. But it feels like, you know, there was a kind of sentiment in America of like, oh, we just had a black president and we're like above this and this whole thing. And, and then you, you have like this extreme flop, you know, to a whole nother level of racism and, and all sorts of different stuff that, um, that was present for sure, but felt like it was maybe more of an undercurrent for quite a while recently. Is that unfair or what, what's going on? Would you say that it, that has caused this kind of explosion or at least on, is it we're just recording stuff more? Is it that we're just putting stuff out more? Well, a little bit of it is we're recording things more, but a little bit of it is the fact that we had a black president and white mm. supremacy doesn't like when we take power away from it, you know? So mm. it feels like this is a direct response to you are not going to take space that you're not supposed to take and we're going to put you back in your place. And I mean, and, and look at the black president we had, right? It's a black president that was white um, raced and mm-hmm. white um, indoctrinated to in a way. Like we are not talking about a black panther here. You know, we're right. talking about a man yeah, yeah. that really well inside of white supremacy. And even then, the pushback of white supremacy, the system, not the people, but the system is we have to remind them that they don't have that much power. So we're going to put the most white supremacist man up um, and, you know, embolden white supremacy as a reminder that this continues to be a white supremacist state. And of course, they don't do any of that consciously. It's all subconscious. Sure. Uh, yeah. But I think it's a direct response of having a black president. And we will continue to have, you know, lash, like, it, white supremacy will continue to lash out every time yeah. it loses power. Um, that's why when you have mm. people like me that speak about white supremacy, they get so angry. Uh, but if it's a white person talking about white supremacy, they don't get as angry because they don't feel like they are losing yeah. power. You continue to be white and you are entitled and allowed to have power. I am not. And they need mm. to remind me of um, so it, yeah. I think it's a response, like having a black president scared white supremacy. It's, you know, it made it obvious that white supremacy is losing power and there's nothing they can do about it, but they sure can stop the movement forward. Yeah. Or it certainly slow it tremendously or, you know, the kind of two steps forward, one step back kind of component. Um, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I get that like on, on so many levels, I, I'm a, I'm a control freak. So I get it when I see someone taking something that I'm like, Oh, I want that. Or, or I need that. Or like, that's mine. I deserve that. Or I don't know, like, you know, when there's one piece of chocolate cake in the, in the cupboard and Till has it for dinner. And I was like, I was expecting that. How could you do that? There's something that rises to me. It, it triggers this fear, this whatever. And it's over something really small. Um, and, and these are things that are, 
through systemic upbringing, these are things that are huge, right? These are the things that our parents warned us about. These are the things that we were told this is going to be the end of civilization as we know it if something like this happens. If there was ever a black president, if gay people can ever marry, if this thing happens, everything is. And and on some level, that's the that's the message of my dad, who I love, who took me fishing every week or, you know, took me to right. ball games. And he was he told me from the earliest age, you got to watch out for the liberals. you got to watch out that other nationalities don't take over America. The American dream is for Americans or like there's this deep seated thing in people that, like you're saying, it's so un- unconscious, it's subconscious. Most of it, I, I, of course, there's very explicitly racist people out there. We, we've met a lot of those <laughs> the last few years um, on other levels, but it feels like it is this war subconsciously and how we, how we wage war at a subconscious level is a really complex thing. It, it feels really, really impossible on some levels. I'm, I'm sure it isn't. Um, I mean, but yeah. we are common that it isn't, right? Because in different ways, both you and I were indoctrinated into white supremacy. Uh, it just didn't benefit me, but I was indoctrinated into it as much. The reason I went to America, and we can talk about this, but because uh, I think it's similar, you know, the reason I moved to America was because it is here. It is here that they had that, that they had Christianity right. Like yeah. we are indoctrinated into these notions and beliefs and white supremacy where where it's it's internalized. We all internalize it, uh, whether we wanted to or not, you know, watching TV shows. I was actually watching Descendants. I don't know if you watch Descendants because you don't have children. Um, but Descendants is this show on Disney about the uh, the children of all the villains and the good, the heroes of all okay. the Disney movies. So you have, you know, the son and the daughter, uh, the son or daughters of Cruella Deville and Maleficent and everybody. And these kids are grappling with the fact that because they are children of the bad guys, then they are bad guys and the good guys mm. are good guys and they are divided. And so there is a lot of very interesting dynamics because they realize that they don't have to be bad because they are, you know, their descendants were bad yeah. or their ancestors were bad. But I was telling my husband, it's really interesting because the the first, re- like the, the first bad girl that turns good is a white girl that is maleficent's daughter and the good king is a white king and the good kids are white and the first like one that is a bad bad girl is black Mm. and those are subconscious messages that we're being sent you know and people are more conscious and aware of that nowadays so it happens a lot less but for always watching movies and it's it's this subconscious programming that white good black bad brown Mm. bad accent but certain accents are bad some other accents are good uh women scary and tricksters and men trustworthy if they are white so all of these notions that we are indoctrinated into that whether we want to admit it or not um it's inside of us and we need to become conscious of it so i i talk about this in the sense of of um resurrection you know because to me resurrecting is waking up from that waking Mm. up from the subconscious conditionings and the, the, you know, being basically zombies that just are moved by the systems of oppression, are told what to believe, how to behave, what to desire, instead of waking up and realizing that's not really serving any of us. I don't need that. And it's actually harming a lot of people, sometimes including me. So, and the only reason I know is because it's work that I had to do. It's, it's yeah. work that I had to awaken to. So I would have never even... Uh, I wasn't fully conscious of how much internalized racism was inside of me until I was able to be conscious. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's, while racism needs to be challenged and we need to hold them accountable and we need to tell them, I think that keeping in mind that they are not racist bad people, but they are indoctrinated, traumatized racist people makes mm-hmm. a world of difference, you know, because the way that we engage yeah. changes yeah. everything. So we, we let go of the dualism of bad and good. Like, oh, now I'm a good guy and you're a bad guy. But before I was still a good guy, even though I was in this, you know, like wherever I am, I'm going to choose to be the good guy. Um, yeah. And we have to mature past that and be able to say, we're all just traumatized people making choices with the tools we have and the information we have. And what we need to do is raise our collective consciousness. Yeah. And, and yeah, no, it feels like, I mean, I'm looking at myself and trying to educate myself and, and all the things I'm doing, but I can I can probably draw some lines in the sand where there was major shifts for me on the whole, but it does feel a bit like a, a night and day awakening. You know, It does feel like I can probably go, oh, I don't know exactly, but it was around this month I, would, I went from being racist to anti-racist, you know? And that probably isn't entirely true, right? On some level, there was probably a whole bunch of ebbs and flows, but... What I do know is if you had called me racist before I had a awakening and woke up, I'd have gone, no, I'm not racist. And and I would have really honestly thought and maybe honestly could say on the, the vast majority of things, I wasn't explicitly racist. That's probably not entirely fair. I still maybe would have laughed at a racist joke or, just, you know, who knows what it might be, or maybe would have had a, a, a response to a black person a certain way or something like, not entirely, but on the whole, I think I, w- I would have been able to look at my life and go, I'm not explicitly racist, but I wouldn't have the language for that. Racist would just mean immediately uh, you're a bad person. You're, you're, you're all these things. Um, and now as an anti-racist, it still makes my gut sink. You know, we've talked to before. I'm like, I, I live for the day that Joe Lumen shows up and goes, Phil fucked up this way by saying this. And this is how it needs to change. I live for that because I want to change, but I also have the sinking feeling in my gut, you know, the, the ugh, feeling where you're like, Oh, I did something wrong. Like, and I still have that. I, I have that tension. Anytime I talk about race, I'm thinking, Phil, don't fuck up. Don't say the wrong thing. Don't, you know, because like, we don't want to, I don't want people to think I'm racist. Or if I'm talking to someone who's trans, I'm like, Oh, especially right now, anytime I'm trying to watch what I say and be sensitive to pronouns, and don't fuck up. Right. I mean, we, we all have that feeling. Um, and it feels like having this war waged at the conscious level the ex- explicit level we're just clashing in in some of the most unhelpful ways it feels because people aren't hearing that message at all like now if you said to me phil you're being racist i'd have been like oh that sucks but okay t- tell me how because i want to understand and i want to try and change if you'd said that to me three four ten years ago i would have gone no i'm not i'd have got really defensive i'd have been really upset we would have had a dialogue that's probably like most of the people you share your stories, which end up with you being blocked and, you know, them being like going on some defensive diatribe. That would have been me. I'm very conscious of that. Um, and it makes you feel like shame, regret, all sorts of emotions might come up, but, but it was me. I can't change who yeah. I was. And that was my story. But, but we can, because here you are. Yes. Saying, so I just mean, I can't change that. What was, was right. It's the past. I can't. We want people to change immediately. We we tell people, like, we hold them accountable and we say, like, hey, can I explain to you why that's problematic? And we we want them to respond immediately with, yes, please, thank you. I love when I'm... Nobody's going to respond that way. I still <laughs> some days don't respond that way. You know, when I mess up, sometimes I have to breathe through my fragility, too. And mm. I have to be like, this isn't personal. 
brief, like my, um, we, we, I, I've talked about this a lot. I like to talk about this because it's really helpful for people to understand that your brain is trying to protect you. So yeah. the moment that I call you racist, your brain is going to shut down. And what fragility is an actual chemical process that is happening inside of your body. And it's, it doesn't make you bad. It doesn't make you mm. awful. It just makes you human. Uh, the problem is not responding, like the problem is not feeling that fragility. It's not, you know, the fragility rising inside of you. The problem is responding to that fragility with absolute, I will not. And having yeah. an inability to be self-aware enough to realize, whoa, I'm totally like, I'm totally defensive right now. I need to breathe through these and try to, why am I so defensive? Yeah. Uh, but we are not, um, what is the word? Societally, to all together, all of us, you know, collectively, we are not emotionally fit to be able no. to do that. Um, I think that's a very fair assumption that most of us would draw that conclusion pretty quickly, just having a broad look at where we're at right now. <laughs> to raise our emotional fitness, um, you know, to work. Because people say, like, we just have to be empathetic. And that's not true. Empathy is it's very natural. Humans are empathetic. We are, um, we are actually hardwired to not want to hurt another person. That's, that's the way we're hardwired. Humans don't want to hurt another person. The only way that you can hurt another person is if you think that you are being harmed yourself or if you've dehumanized them in your brain. Those are the only two ways, self-defense or you stop seeing them as humans altogether. Uh, but you don't know that's happened in your brain. So racism, transphobia, homophobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, fatphobia, all of these things, what they've done is they've dehumanized the other so that I can excuse myself from harming you. Mm -hmm. And it's happening subconsciously. So I need to become conscious of it. So I, everybody's like, I'm totally empathetic. I'm an empathetic person. Yeah, towards your own. Uh, so what we need to do is raise our emotional fitness so that instead of caring so much about my emotions, I am able to look at the emotional map of the conversation and of the emotional map of society and be able to say, okay, what you're saying is valid, even though my intent wasn't that. I need to understand my impact. And I appreciate you taking the time to come to me to tell me that. Mm. And I'm going to my own fragility so that I can rise beyond um you know, my, my own backfire effect. That's what it's actually literally yeah. called the backfire effect. It just shuts your brain down and you cannot, your, um, your frontal cortex is gone. You're not thinking clearly anymore. And your entire body is telling the rest of your, like your brain is telling the rest of your body, defend, defend, defend. You're being attacked. So until we are conscious of those processes inside of us, we're not going to be able to stop them. Uh, and basically what we have to do is, my brain is hijacking my ability to engage with another person. I need to breathe. I need to open up my brain again so that I don't get hijacked anymore by my own brain. Mm. Uh, and that's hard work. It's, it's hard work, but I think that we're doing it. And it doesn't happen on the, um, it doesn't only happen on the personal level. It happens on the collective level too, because when mm. people are assholes to me, I, sometimes I respond like an asshole too, but for the most part, I try to respond with, with care and I try to understand, okay, you are triggered. And I, I say that sometimes to them, you know, you are, I actually like the word more activated. Some one of my friends just taught me the word. I, I said, I don't like triggered. And she's like, neither. And she said, activated. And I was like, yeah, I like that better. Um, so I, you know, recognizing you're activated right now, something that I said made you feel threatened. Um, mm. Could you take a minute to just breathe through that? I, I'm not trying to harm you. I was just trying to explain to you how you've harmed me. Mm. And being able to have those conversations and see the other as a human 
because the dehumanizing doesn't stop because we're anti-racist. The dehumanizing stops when the moment that I choose to believe that the other is bad, yeah. the moment that I choose the dualism of the binary of good and bad, the moment that I, I label someone, you are just bad, then, um, you know, I'm doing the exact same thing just on the other end. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful place to arrive at. And I, I recognize my, my own growth in that area, just recognizing some of these very basic guttural kind of physical primal, maybe even we might say like responses. And, you know, someone might message me and say, Hey, when you said this in a story or whatever, I, I really didn't like it. you said this. It made me, I'm a disabled person and that maybe felt a bit ableist and my first response is going oh, I've, got, I've got multiple disabled people in my family like I'm, I'm immediately like my brain is like I'm not ableist or whatever it is and and just learning to recognize anytime I try and anytime I try and defend myself and anytime I've written a defense I'm like okay and delete it how can we actually engage this but, but learning to go oh this is this is little Phil on the playground who's worried he's not going to fit in anymore and he's scared and he, he doesn't want to be alone and he really wants people to like him. And and just kind of stopping hand on heart, just going, it's okay. You're safe. People want to connect. The, the reason this person is reaching out is because they actually want you to be connected and to connect with them. And, and there's a there's a gap here and we can close, you know, just trying to like create that that process. But I am aware that that's something that I've never naturally done. It's something I've, I've picked up and learned along the way. I guess my question is, and, and I, I guess I'm asking this because I don't think this should be, this goes unsaid, this should not be your work. I, I, th- I think it's admirable and beautiful that this is your work and, and I'm really impressed and I think it's astonishing and I think you are one of the best people out there in this world doing this work. Um, but it shouldn't be your work to do. This should be like someone like me. This should be my work to be helping and educating and changing the the white uh, world to be a little bit more awake and aware and less white supremacist, bit less fragility, or, or at least be able to deal with their fragility. But I'm very conscious that this is something you've probably thought about a lot. So I'm going to ask for my benefit of how can I be a part of that? And also maybe how can I wake up a bit? you're not just dealing with people that are waking up and helping them, you know? So it's not just me who's gone, Oh, I've woken up a bit and I just want to educate myself. How can I do that? You're dealing with people that are just not, if there's a, if there's a scale from completely asleep to (laughs) completely awake, I don't know what that looks like or where I am or where you are. All I know is that there are some people really far on the asleep stage. You're dealing with some of those people every day. And, and do you, what are your thought processes on, how do I break in here? How do I find that scared boy? How do I, because, because it must feel like occasionally you must go into a conversation going, this isn't going to go well. There's no way this is going to work. So do you, do you sit and go, it's not worth my time? Or do you think, oh, maybe if I do it from this perspective, like what, what's your thought process in reaching what many of us would look at and go, that's unreachable, right? I'm thinking like me with my racist grandma. What is that? Yeah. Where do I begin? Right. This is someone that is talk about systemic. This person is 70 years steeped into it. You know, like they're, they're systemically racist, right? If there's a systemic way to be racist, grandma is. And um, what, what's going through your minds when you're thinking, okay, let's, let's try and engage with this person. There is so many different, there are so many different variables that I take into account. The first thing I ask myself is how am I doing? You know, like, am I okay? Mm. Um, if I don't feel safe then I don't engage at all, uh, which okay. has happened, you know, like an overt white supremacist 
um, engagement, I, I don't feel safe and I don't owe that. Yeah. Um, so it's, if it's overt white supremacy or overt sexism, or uh, I get a lot, a lot of um, sexual threats, like I'm done, you know, yeah. like it's, I don't need to engage with that because I don't feel safe. That's it. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's the beauty of the opportunity for a, a white male. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but that's like, you know, that should be something you can go, hey, guys, this is not safe for me. Take over. I want some white males to jump into this white man's space and go, what the hell are you doing? You need to sort yourself out or whatever. Sorry, please keep if going. I, don't safe, I, I, I just don't have to do it because we don't mm. owe these to anybody, right? Um, yeah. However, there is, if I do feel safe and I want to engage, um, there are a, a few things that I ask myself and I like, I watch, you know, the interaction. I watch how is this person doing? And I point out like, Hey, you, you, it sounds to me like you are upset. It sounds to me like you're triggered, um, activated. And I, if you are, perhaps we can just table these and come back later. Um, so record, like watching the other all the time, recognizing that I am recognizing if I am getting myself a rise too. And if I am trying to protect mm. something that I don't need to protect, because if, if one of us is doing that, then the conversation is over. And it, it isn't always the other. Sometimes it's us too. Um, yeah. So understanding that, am I othering this person? Am I dehumanizing them in my head? Um, understanding all of those dynamics. And um, and then for sometimes, even if I'm feeling not super safe, but I love this person, I still stay in the engagement and I still try to have the conversation. But one thing that I wrote recently is I don't engage people to change their mind. Um, the moment that we engage people to change their mind is the moment that we are treating them as a less than. That is supremacy mm -hmm. in itself. You know, my intent is not to change your mind. My intent is to show you how I experience what you've done. My intent is to see if you can, for just one second, see how I experience what you've done and what mm -hmm. I've learned and why my experience is important for you to understand or why the experience of trans people, I'm not trans, but why the experience of trans people is important for you to understand when you're being transphobic. So my intent is just to say, hey, are you willing to see another side of this? Um, mm -hmm. Are you, you know, like, I, I recognize and understand that though I know they are wrong and I know they are harming, not to them, they aren't, yeah. you know, to them, especially when we're talking about, for instance, homosexuality, to them, they are saving the world from a sure. perversion. And it's like, no, can I, we have this conversation because this is actually harming people. This belief is harming people. And can I explain to you how it is harming people? But I, all the time in the back of my head, I'm recognizing you are responding to your indoctrination. You are responding to the choices that were made for you. You are responding to your trauma. Uh, and that's why I talk so much about recognizing our privilege because there is, so I don't feel safe in conversations where my humanity is being denied. So I usually walk away from those conversations because I'm like, you're denying my humanity and this is traumatizing for me. But if you're talking about transphobia, that's not traumatizing for me because I'm not trans. Therefore, I have a responsibility to engage in that conversation for the sake of trans people. Mm. So I will stay in the conversation even after I want to check out because it's boring and it's exhausting and ugh, I just don't want to do it. Yeah. But the humanity of somebody else is on stake. So I ask myself, you know, like, is this a conversation that will benefit uh, uh, an identity group that I am not a part of? This is not re-traumatizing me. Therefore, I can engage in it. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and making sure all the time that I am not, so I am very careful to not financially benefit or my career doesn't benefit from having these conversations. These are conversations that I have one-on-one, you know, it's discomfort mm. that I have one-on-one. Uh, but at the end of the day, if anybody should be getting financial uh, benefits from this work should be trans people, yeah. right? So I can buy these books by trans people, learn from all these trans people. And if you have any questions, come back to me, do not ask them. Mm. Uh, you know, don't re-traumatize them. Uh, read their books, engage with their content, buy their the, everything that they are putting out there. But when you have transphobic thoughts or questions or you want to understand more, come to me uh, for for the sake of protecting, you know, and um, I've talked about these, like understanding that we are uh, we are shielding the the communities that have less privilege in the world than us with our own privilege. So what is the privilege that I have? And therefore, that allows me to shield the people that don't have that privilege. And we do that for one another. Right. So Mm -hmm. the reason I continue to engage the Christian community uh, is because as a Christian myself, whether I still identify as a Christian or not is, is kind of irrelevant, though I do. But I was a Christian for a long time, and I am still a Christian, though a very different type of Christian. Um, and I was a pastor. So I feel like I have a responsibility. Um, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to to hold Christians accountable, especially mm. pastors. Like I have the training I, I went to school. I have the language. I am able to explain things in Greek and Hebrew. Um, so I have a responsibility to stand up for those inside of churches that have less privilege than me as a pastor, that have less privilege than me as someone that has been theo- like theologically educated. Um, so I don't do it to pick a fight with the pastors. I don't do it. Because I don't care. You know, they have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. I do it for those they are harming. Those are because people ask me, how can you do these? I'm like, because I don't care about what all of these pastors that have privilege have to say about me or think about me. I don't care about them. I'm not doing it for them all the time. I'm doing it for me at 19 years old and what I wish I could have read and what I wish I would have seen, what I wish I would have been able to be like, huh, I hadn't even thought of that. And it's true. And I don't need to submit to these ridiculous nonsense, traumatic beliefs. Um, Mm. So all the time, you know, these conversations, I'm thinking through who is the one that has the least amount of power? Who is the one that has the least amount of privilege? And if I engage in this conversation, will they be benefited? So the benefit yeah. is for the ones with the least amount of privilege, not for the one I'm in, like immediately engaging. Yeah. So, so all of those things are going through my head when I'm engaging. And that's why knowing if I feel safe or not matters a lot to me. Mm, yeah. Because then I, I'm just being re-traumatized and nothing is worth being re-traumatized. Like, no, sure. On. Yeah, I, I, man, I, I just, you just like kind of sparked a thought in my head that I hadn't really thought about. But this week, I've been finding my my Facebook page. People that listen to this, like, are only on Facebook, are going to be really heartbroken by this. But I hate my Facebook page. I hate the the the, the people that follow me on Facebook have been following me for like twelve years, and the majority of them are kind of conventional christians that are maybe a bit edgy or a bit like a fringe but on the whole are still very much quite fundamental in their faith and because of that a lot of the stuff i post on instagram just automatically goes over there and once in a while every few days i open it up and i have a look and and just this week it's just got to a tipping point where i feel i'm i'm grieving as i read the comments I, it's really hurting it's, it's really traumatizing me and i don't know what that is overly because i've dealt with shit for 
a decade plus and as far as dealing with Christians and pushing back on Christians. Um, but it's really doing, it's really hurting. Um, and I just checked today, I think it was, or maybe it was yesterday. And again, there's some horrible comments and stuff. Most of the horrible stuff is in private messages. And I know you know that um, because people will not, if you think what people post publicly is bad, wait till you see the private, wait till you see our DMs, right? Um, and I was just, the, the weight that came off my shoulder when I checked today and I looked at this horrible comment that someone had posted and I didn't even reply. I was like, you know what? I'm just not, he doesn't even deserve, like this is doing too much internally with me and I need to go and figure out. And I just saw four or five people come on and just like basically just put this person in their place and go, like, who are you? Like, what are you trying to do here? Like, how dare you? Do you know Phil's heart? And I just was like, <sighs> and, and I can't imagine because I can't imagine what it's like for someone like a trans person who I can't even imagine the, the minority of people out there that are in their corner fighting for them. I can't even imagine, right? Um, what it feels like to see yet another pastor say some horrendous thing and then see as they are scrolling through the comments, cause we can't help it, right? We can't, we're drawn in and we, we, maybe we're looking, we're hoping maybe someone validates me or something, right? Maybe I have one like on Facebook. No, it's just awful comments or whatever it is. And, and yet to see Joe Lumen got her gloves on and just came to town to fight your corner. Like I can't imagine like how that feels. It, it must just feel. Uh, like a million dollars you know just that idea just sparked to me of this tiny pathetic very privileged kind of uh example that i have in my week um but yeah it must be huge exactly especially if you're not used to it if you're used to uh i have to fight all my fights because nobody stands in my corner ever yeah uh and the, the least amount of privilege you have the more that that's your reality so the more that somebody's saying like no i'm here I'm here and I will not tolerate this. Um, the more that it allows for you. That's what I talk about. You know, I talk about safety and how we are not going to be able to raise our collective consciousness and heal collectively until we are able to create spaces where people feel safe. Yeah. Uh, because our body at, at a molecular level is not able to heal unless we feel safe. Um, the, least, the least amount of privilege you have the least amount of spaces where you're safe that you have. Mm. So we're talking about poor people. Like I'm talking poor, poor people below, you know, the, the, the level of um, poverty in the right. world. I'm talking a dollar a day people. They are never safe. So when we're wow. like, oh, just, you know, they just need to work harder. No, they are in cycles of trauma. And until we create safety for them, where they are not all the time thinking, where is my next meal going to come from? Uh, they are never going to be able to get out of the cycles of trauma. They are never going to be able to. And if you look at the stories of those, like very, very few that have been able to get out, it's because they found small spaces of safety. It's because mm. somebody reached out and said, let me give you a, just a small little bit of safety. And then they allowed for them to heal enough to be able to move forward. Um, so that's why pages like yours or like mine, it's not just social media. It's really not. We're talking about spaces of safety. Mm -hmm. We're talking about spending the reach, expanding, I'm sorry, expanding the reach of safety so that collectively we can heal and collectively we can raise our consciousness and what I call move societally towards heaven on earth uh, yeah. or liberation or whatever you want to call it. Um, but if we are not moving towards ensuring that everyone feels safe, then those who don't feel safe will not be able to heal. That's why I know mm -hmm. that in so long as you stay inside of toxic churches, you're not going to heal. You're not. Uh, Your brain yeah. won't let you heal. 
because your brain is protecting you. And your brain can only do two things. Your body can only do two things, protect you or uh, heal. They cannot do, like your, your body cannot do those two things simultaneously. So, so long as your concern is protection, you will not be able to heal. Yeah. Imagine what that means for black people, for indigenous people. And I'm talking about not just healing of trauma. I'm talking also about healing, physical healing. Uh, the reason why you see so much sickness, the specific types of sicknesses inside of black communities or inside of indigenous communities. And when we were talking about alcoholism inside of indigenous communities, which a lot of it is also ridiculous, but we're talking about trauma that is just so hard to heal. We're talking about coping mechanisms and we're talking about we are not moving the reach of safety from indigenous for indigenous communities so that they can heal. Because regardless, we are in a white supremacist state. So until we are able to move supremacy further away so that they have more space to breathe, um, we're going to keep seeing heart disease and cancer and alcoholism and drug addiction. And, um, you know, and we're all going to you know, poor people will continue to steal because they are they want to survive. They're, of course, they're trying right? to stay alive. Yeah. That's it. Um, so we have to continue to change the conversations. Right. What does it mean to ensure that there is safety for people? Mm. Uh, and in a small scale, you and I do that. Right. Mm. Because we stand in corners of people that nobody has stood in before. And we open up space to be able to say, yeah, we're not going to center pastors here anymore. Pastors are not safe here. <laughs> and that's OK. They don't need to be safe here. Right. They've, they've got plenty of space to be safe. <laughs> exactly. They've been safe for far too, safe for far too long. Mm. But everybody that has been harmed by theology that is toxic and by pastors that push toxic theology is safe here. And I will protect your safety here. Uh, and that raises our collective healing, or at least it raises our availability to healing. So that's why I talk about the the healing is a privilege. You know, we don't get to look at people and be like, I mean, by now you should be over that, get over it. You know, yeah. like no, now if we healing is a privilege, and I recognize that privilege in me. Not only do I have the enough finances, I'm poor by by American standards, I'm poor, but I have enough finances to be able to buy books and take the time to read books because I have a husband because I'm married and he could work while I was reading and studying and learning. I, um, I, I speak two languages, which changes a lot of things. I was telling this to someone. I know that even though I'm officially poor, my family isn't. And at the end of the day, if everything fails, I call mm. my mom fixes my problems. I know she would. I know she would show up. There are people that don't have that. That is levels of safety that I have that allow my healing. You know, I know that if something happens, I can call my mother-in-law and she will help us with the kids. She will pay for the kids things. And that changes everything that allows for me to be able to heal in ways that other people don't have accessibility to healing. So we don't, we don't, I look at those who have a hard time healing more with how can I expand the reach of healing for you? What what mm -hmm. tools do you not have? How can we ensure that you have space for healing? That you can breathe, that you can rest, um, so that you can so that we can collectively move forward instead of, I mean, by now you should, you know, somebody told me the problem inside of the church for you is that you didn't set boundaries. Like it's all on you. And I was like, one, yes, uh, but no. I wasn't taught how to set boundaries. I was taught that I had to work hard. Not only as a woman, but also as an immigrant, that I had to prove my worth inside of this. And capitalism teaches us all that the harder you work, the more hours you put, the more 
emails you respond in the next, like in the 10 minutes that you receive it, the more text messages that you respond to, the more times that you say yes to things, the more that you get to advance in this system, even at the expense of your health. Um, we are taught that resting is laziness. So yeah. sure, I could have set better boundaries, but I, nobody taught me to do that. No. They taught me that setting those boundaries was laziness and was wrong and was evil and was, you know, all the things that I didn't want to be. So sure, you can go ahead and blame me or we can talk about the system and how we can start celebrating and clapping for the things that are worth clapping. You're resting. That's awesome. Instead of... Yeah. You're going to take a sabbatical for that. I mean, if it's a pastor taking a sabbatical, we clap. But if it's somebody saying like, hey, I really don't want to serve in this church for the next six months. It's like Oof, your relationship with God is not mm. okay. Instead of awesome, you know your limits and I celebrate you. That's super cool. I, I love that you are so self-aware that you know that you can't do this anymore. Right? We celebrate yeah, the wrong absolutely. No. And then we let people for responding to those celebrations. Yeah. Man, that's that's huge, and and it's something I mull that over a lot. Like the level of privilege I have. I mean, I, I do this full time. Like it's such a yeah, yeah, no, fine. Here's about to die, and I didn't plug it. Out oh no why. problem. I just decided that my computer was going to be alive forever. Okay. No worries. You good? You yeah. powered up? I guess, yeah. So I, I guess the thing that that fires me is I'm always aware of this. Like people come to me and I'm having slightly different conversations. I do talk with people often about things like race, but generally speaking, that's not someone that I'm known to be the person to go to with these questions. Um, and that's probably a really good thing. And I want to talk about that on some level as well, but the level of privilege, I, uh, people that go, well, you seem to have deconstructed so much. You seem to know so much about where you're at and what you believe. You seem to be very content with what you believe. Like I've been doing this for three years and I don't feel like I've moved forward that much. And, and I'm like, okay, but how many hours a day do you get to do this? Because I, I'm married. I have no kids. I realistically for the last 10 years have done this 12, 13 hours a day, six days a week. <laughs> I mean, I've just, I've put tens of thousands of hours into this and, and I'm very privileged to have done that. And I'm, I'm very thankful to have done that. Um, and I don't think that's actually required either. And I think actually reading books is actually just, it's, it's beautiful and helpful and whatever, but actually I think just going for a walk taking right. a break from everything that's gone on, that can be a huge step forward in deconstruction. That can be a huge step forward in decolonization as well. I think it's, it's, it's finding these spaces. It's, it's giving peace to some trauma. It's giving some resolution to some trauma. Um, it, it does feel, it feels like an urgency to it though. Doesn't there? Like, I, I, I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe not always, but it feels like the people I'm talking to, there is an urgency behind it. There's a like, I'm waking up to this issue and I want to fix it. I want to be on the other side of this. I want to, I want to get over my trauma. I want to get over uh, being racist and, and, and be able to say, no, I'm, I'm completely free from that. And I'm now anti-racist and that's a box I can tick, right? We arrived and I'm, I'm there um, or whatever it is, right? I want to get from here to here. There's that urgency. Like, 
what do you say to people like that when they're working three jobs and they've got four kids and they're a single dad or a mom or you know like, that's that's a hey guess what this isn't going to happen overnight conversation generally right i'm assuming maybe maybe some people just i don't know but it seems rare <laughs> You know, like it wasn't the case for me. And I still don't consider myself to have arrived. I think that mm. it's that idea that we are told that you have to arrive, you know, and you have to be the, the guru and the knowledgeable one. And they, I'm yeah. very careful of, of telling people I'm not the guru. I'm just the most knowledgeable yeah. thing I'm on. It's me. So that's mm. all I can offer, really. Um, but I think it's that it's it's part of the white supremacist ideology that we're all indoctrinated into, that we have to be the experts, that we have to be the best one, that we have to be, instead of being able to see our life and ourselves as in process, always, yeah. you know, we're evolving, we're in process. And that's why I say I, I do consider myself a Christian today, today, and I give myself permission to change my mind tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and I don't have to have all the answers. There are things that I don't know yet, and that's okay. And today, I believe that when the Bible is talking about resurrection, we ought to read it as an awakening. Uh, and that's today, you know, but I don't I don't claim to be right about that or to have a final authority on what that is. Um, so we have to, we have been indoctrinated into this belief that we have to have final truths and that everything has to be set and that everything has to be perfect. Um, this, this obsession with perfection, even whether you're a perfectionist or not, the obsession with perfectionism and the obsession with appearing to be perfect is, uh, it's a default, like it's created, it's baked into white supremacist culture. So we don't want to appear as unfinished. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't feel good to appear as unfinished because if we are unfinished, then we are not acceptable. But we're all unfinished. You know, we're all in process. So I think that giving people permission, because sometimes we, we feel like we need that permission when we come out of Christianity. Um, I don't know why, but I mean, I do know yeah, why. No. Told that we need permission and yeah. telling people, you don't need to have all the answers, you know, and you don't have to like whatever you believe today can change again tomorrow when you have more information and you will continue to change your mind and tomorrow you can choose that you know what i think i'm an atheist and that's totally fine and then three years after that be like nope agnostic um that doesn't mean that you were wrong it doesn't mean that yeah. you were wrong when you chose to be an atheist it means that you were faithful to who you were when you needed to be an atheist but it doesn't serve you anymore and that's fair and that's okay uh, yeah. But this fear with changing our mind as though it is an indicator that we are that we are wrong. Mm. Um, but instead, it is an indicator that we have more information now. And information, I'm not talking about books, like you were saying. I'm talking about we have more information about us and others. Mm. We have more information about who we are. We're able to know more about ourselves and about others. And that information changes the way in which we present ourselves. So there is... Um, sculpture that my mother-in-law bought for me she was at an art like thing and she saw this sculpture and she said this sculpture made me think of you like it just I had to buy it, it it's you so when she dies it's mine uh, that's what she said <laughs> um, so is this it's a woman and she's standing with a chisel in her hand that's a hard word for me to say um, and she has a hammer in the other hand and she waist down she's inside a block of cement and she's wow. chiseling her way out of the cement. And you can see scars, you know, in her body. She's she's a, she's like a wire person. It's weird, but it's beautiful. She can see holes and scars in her body. 
that's what I think deconstruction is. Mm. Um, it's chiseling our way. That's what I think. Not only what I think deconstruction is, that's what I think salvation is too. It's chiseling our way out of the boxes of the indoctrination of the social conditioning so that we can become the one that we were always meant to be. Mm. And at the beginning, we can only move a hand and a finger and we can only start by blinking, but eventually we get more mobility, you know, and we get more mobility. So after 12 years for you of doing this full time, having conversations and engaging, you're probably moving your toes right now. But some people. I, I hope all, so. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Maybe I'm just neck up. I don't know. But <laughs> it feels like every time I think I'm finished, there's a whole not bunch more. But uh. yeah. Um, but there is people that are just yeah. being, like are just starting to blink. Yeah. And and recognizing where we are and recognizing that this is a process and it's going to be a journey is important and giving ourselves permission to be like, I'm totally unfinished and that's completely fine. Yeah. And I will change my mind tomorrow and that's completely fine. Somebody um, DM'd me and said that I gave them hope for Christianity. Um, they said, I don't consider myself a Christian anymore, but sometimes I, I wish I could because there are so many things about Christianity that I love. Uh, and you give me hope that maybe one day I can become a Christian. I was like, you don't have to. You can just grab whatever you want from Christianity that you love and continue to be an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um you can do whatever the hell you want. There are no rules yeah. anymore. We are, we belong to ourselves. We are our own person. And we have the only thing that we owe to anything is to be faithful to who we were created to be and who we are. So you mm. can be an atheist that holds to some Christian beliefs. You can be whatever you want. There are no rules anymore. You know, and we had this exchange and they were saying like, I had never considered that, that I really do not need permission from Christians to be able to hold to some Christian tenets that yeah. serve me and still do serve me. Um, so wherever you are is where you are. It's not wrong. Mm. It's not right. It's not too slow. It's not, you know, you, you, it's not that you haven't evolved fast enough. It's just that you are who you are and your journey is unique and you're not supposed to be anywhere else, but where you are. So, yeah. you know, embrace embrace you that's it we don't owe anybody anything we embrace ourselves and we learn to accept ourselves and you know belong i love Brene brown talks about this a lot about the belonging to yourself until and she has she talks about how she had to struggle with this because she read i believe it was a maya angelo quote but i don't remember exactly where she was talking about unless we belong to ourselves we don't belong anywhere yes Brené was like, what? Like that goes against everything because we need to belong to one another, right? And and then recognizing in the book, she talks about, it's Braving the Wilderness, the book that she talks about this. She talks about how when she recognized that that was true, unless we belong to ourselves so deeply that belonging to others doesn't remove our own safety, um, belonging or not belonging to others does not affect our own safety until we get there. We really don't belong to anybody. What belongs is the image other have of us. And so far as we're trying to protect that image over not um, betraying our own selves, we mm-hmm. are unhealed people that are going to, that, that are harming. You're, you're betraying your own self. You're harming yourself. So mm-hmm. the, jo- the journey is to learn to belong to ourselves. And it's a long journey. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, it makes me think of, you know, we talked earlier, but someone sends me a message and is like, you did something that's ableist or racist or whatever. And I'm immediately, oh no. And it, it attacks the narrative, the story I'm telling about myself that, oh, I'm, I'm not anymore. I'm, I've arrived or I never was or whatever it is. But it's the thing of, 
when you start to realize that your response can be, of course I'm racist occasionally. Of course. This is a, like, chiseled out, like, mess so far. You know, like, I mean, I've barely got an arm out and I'm flapping around trying to do stuff with it. You know, that's about it right now. So of course I screw up occasionally. Of course I'm not going to get this perfectly. Like, that's an okay response. That, oh, whoa, the weight suddenly off the shoulders to go, oh, I don't have to have it down. I don't have to arrive. I, I think I posted on Instagram this week about the, the concept of backslidden to Christians, right? They, for a Christian, you're out and then you arrive in. And it's not this progressive journey. So any movement beyond in is back out. You right. know, you're, you're out again. And, and, and so there is this fear of, of momentum, of change, of growth. There's a fear of chiseling anything out. We have set in stone what's le- allowed and we're not going to get a chisel out anytime soon. We're stuck with this. It's, it's really tough because I, I guess I, I think about this year, I've been so much more intentional about working with inherent sexism and racism that I just did not know that was still so deeply rooted. And uh, and that's been some heavy chiseling. And I, I got some scars from those chisels. I, I, I've slipped and missed a fair few times, I think. Um, or maybe I was just really closely attached to some of the bits of rock that had to go. I don't know. Um, and, and I guess I want to ask you, you know, we, we talk about using privilege and and i'm very conscious of, i'm privileged on so many levels it like it's ridiculous and and I, i'm yeah you know like it's it is what it is i i didn't choose to be who i am but i am who i am and, and i have to be aware of that so but i do think okay you can step in for a trans person i can step in for a trans person and a person of color like indigenous black whatever i'm white i'm at the, the top of that like societally structured totem pole i'm right at the top and I, I i have the privilege so i can i can be a person that steps in but one of the things i was aware of whilst doing this work and i had thought i'd done a lot of work already and maybe i had compared to some but it's not about comparing yourself with others it's about doing the work for you is realizing this is hard this is exhausting i i probably spent about two months really depressed until he was like what is going on with you and i'm like I do not know, but I feel like literally just shit day in day. I wake up feeling like shit. I feel like I wade through a, a six foot like sea of treacle. You know, I'm just, I'm wading through my day. I go to bed going, I feel pretty crap. Go to sleep, wake up, still feel crap. But two months straight and it was about two months in, I was like, it's because I'm just relentlessly non-stop like listening to 18 hour audiobooks in like one day on race or you know whatever i am non-stop i'm i'm kind of pausing my podcast i'm putting out half as many podcasts i'm really trying to focus and go let me try and do this work um that that just floored me i i didn't have space i wasn't even really in the place to be helping people in that month or two like i just you know i, I just wasn't there and i guess what I'm aware of is, is I've tried to find more balance to that and I may have swung too far in a pendulum and maybe I need to find a bit better balance. But one of the things I'm aware of is how do we use that privilege when we still have so much work to do? You know, I, I think of you posted recently about an interaction you had and I saw that interaction. I saw a post that someone had said about, um, I can't remember exactly what it was. There's something to do with Thanksgiving and we don't need to get political over dinner or whatever. And, and I was like, God, that's a privileged position. What does that look like for, I don't know, uh, a whole host of different people. Um, and I was about to comment and I was like, I don't even know how to word this, but I'm going to say something. And then I saw you posted on it and I was like, Joe's got it. Like she's going to say this a thousand times better than me. But 
hearing you talk there about the experience of maybe a trans person or something, I, I, I rethink that interaction and I go, Phil, was that the right response? Was it the right response to go, well, here's the expert? Or was the right response to even say, look, I don't even know how to word this, but Joe is on it. I agree with Joe here. I think there's something here. And I think as a white person, I recognize this in myself at times. And I, I have learned this. Like, it's, it's really hard for me to find that balance where I don't want to be stepping in going, hi, here's the white guy to to save you and tell you how wrong you are when I don't even know. I'm not an expert. I'm not, I, I've not done enough work to be on any level an expert on this level. But at the same time to be going, I can be pulling some of this weight that other people don't need to be pulling. Can you talk to that of like how, because I'm sure it maybe in certain areas you are the expert and in other areas, maybe you're not, but you, you still relentlessly dive in. I've seen you relentlessly dive in and fight corners in every area of life. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know how you do it. You're like the energizer bunny on Instagram. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, how, talk me through like, how should I be navigating some of these things? And, and people listening, I'm sure are thinking this stuff too. I'm sure I'm not alone. You touched on so many things. I was actually taking notes. Okay, um, sorry, I ramble. So we can no, bit by bit. <laughs> taking notes because it's important what you're talking about. Um, so I first, you, you're talking about your, you know, the depression of s- submerging yourself into the white supremacist world, you know, and yeah. seeing the white supremacist world no longer from Phil's eyes, but now from the eyes of those who are not privileged inside of white supremacy. So listening yeah. to books by Tanahisi Coates or listening like some of these books, I it takes me months to read Tanahisi Coates' words because of the trauma that it, you know, like it I can feel it. I mm. I, I cry. I have to stop. It it yeah. breaks me. It just breaks yeah. me. Same yeah. when I read history. Um, and I read a lot of history. And I, I have to stop and it it just absolutely breaks me. Yeah. Um yeah. I recognize that that is, I am experiencing trauma and it's, it's very emotional and my body is responding to that and it should. Uh, and I need to rest sometimes too. And then I also think of those who don't have the ability to just stop yeah. the book. Yeah. You know? Well, I think I kept pushing myself in this season. I remember saying to my wife saying, I don't, this is a privileged thing for me to go, Oh, poor me. I'm getting upset reading about slavery. I'm like, that yeah. I'm so I am the uh, of I course know. I'm not but I am the oppressor I am the person that's certainly living yeah. off the backs of that and so I'm like what is it for if if nothing else this this almost felt and I had to catch myself almost a sycophant kind of like thing in my head of like well if the, if the black person does this every second of every day when they're scared of police brutality when they are um, not afforded the opportunity to educate to the same degree when they are not given the same opportunities in employment like I'm like the least I can be doing is doing this brutal work to educate but like how dare I say you know uh, there was a thing that but I, I still I process that to some degree a bit but I, you know I, I'm so aware it's such a privileged thing you know I can't even imagine what it is to do the same work yeah but the, the- the work is that to be aware that you are in a privileged position. The work is not. Uh, so I'm going to say something uncomfortable. Get ready, please. Part of the reason why we want to read it all and, and consume it all and fix it all is white saviorism. It's mm-hmm. 100% white saviorism. Is this desire to become the savior, which continues to be white supremacy within? So yeah. we don't have to know all the things. We don't have to understand all the things. And we don't. We certainly don't have to 
consume everything into a, in a way that it just destroys us too, because then we are not helpful, right? Um, yeah. And I say this often, if we are not enjoying our life, um, and, and I, I say this comprehending and understanding that I have the privilege to say this, this is not easy for everyone. However, if you are privileged enough to be able to enjoy your life and we are not enjoying your life, then oppression wins again. Mm. Especially for those of us who walked away from, um, from you know, the, the oppressive system that is inside of toxic churches where we weren't enjoying life because we were told we couldn't enjoy life because joy, unless it's the fake joy of Christianity, right. joy is seen as sinful. So there is, there is a resistance. There, there is a, it is resistance to enjoy our life too. You know, it is yeah. resistance to rest. It is resistance to laugh. It is resistance to have some drinks with our friends and get tipsy and laugh and be silly. There is resistance in dancing. There is resistance in going out. There is resistance in flirting. I, I flirt. I love flirting now because I feel that I am resisting white supremacist notions of what I am supposed to be as a wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't do it like in a way that I'm leading somebody on, you know, like it's silly right. flirting. That means nothing. To enjoy being playful. and Yeah. Yes, just being yeah. just being playful. The things that I didn't get to do when I was supposed to do. Right. That, yeah. You know? <laughs> like saying, you don't get to steal that from me. You just don't get mm. to steal that from me. So recognizing our privilege doesn't mean that we want it to go away. It means that we use it, right? So if we submerge ourselves so much into this trauma um, that we end up depressed and it, it really, the only function of that is that we feel like we are white saviors. Like, look at me, I'm also sad yeah. um and it's not a conscious process it's, it's I, I recognized it I, I i i was i was genuinely that's why i was saying like I, it, it got like kind of this sycophant weird like look at me i can somehow go through i or, or i can empathize with this on a on a, on a right. some level and i was like this is just really fucked am, up and i'm like so what good. is that and, right i am so good <laughs> that i am even wanting to feel your pain and uh, whatever the cost even at the cost of my own right healing you know, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's just completely white saviorism within us too. Mm. And so recognizing that, okay, I don't need to do that. Um, the best thing that I can do for the movement of liberation for all of us is to be the healthiest version of myself. And that includes sometimes stepping away, not forever, but sometimes stepping away and being like, I cannot engage with that. Uh, so sometimes people ask me like, why haven't you talked about this? I'm like, because I don't want to. <laughs> mm. don't, we don't have to talk about every topic. We don't have to right. address injustice. We don't have to read about every, because if we do, we're killing ourselves too. And then oppression wins yet again. Um, So there there is resistance in also saying, I want joy in my life and I will find ways to have it. And I will, at the same time, we can do both, you know, fight so that everyone else can have joy too. So we can do both. And I recognize when I myself, I am, because it happens to me too, Phil, where uh, there are, and my husband is the one that recognizes it before me. I'm sure that it happens with your wife too. Mm-hmm. My like, wife is on it. Okay. Yeah. He's like, you're not okay. And I need you to step away. Uh, if you, you know, he doesn't make me or anything like that, but he's like, I need you to consider how maybe you need to step away right now. Cause you, it, it feels like you're not okay. Like this mm. is really, so it happened for when I, uh, in the summer I had this um, tweet thing that went viral in the worst yeah. possible way. Uh, with just, you know, extremist white supremacist Christians. And I woke up one day to thousands of messages, both DMs and mentions 
um, and reading them was a lot, just a lot. Um, and so I tried to reply to everybody. I was trying to get back and then I made actual replies to the things that they were saying, like actual elaborate theological replies. So it was six theological replies to all of these things to explain, like, I'm not an idiot. Like, I choose to believe the things I believe because I've actually done the work. And, and I don't do this for you. I do it for those of us who've been told we don't get to believe that we can be Christians and also be gay or, you know, accept gay people or whatever. So, but after a few weeks of that, I, you could physically see me, you know, I was affected by all of this, but I wanted to keep fighting because I was fighting white supremacy inside of me. And a lot of that is the white savior that we all have inside of us, you know, regardless of our skin color, uh, Mm -hmm. we all want to save the world. And we all have this, we've all been given this narrative, which is very, very prevalent in Christianity of the hero. And we all want to be the hero, right? Because Jesus is the hero. Now we're little Jesuses who are heroes too. The heroes don't exist. Um, we are all our own hero. Uh, you know, the only hero that exists in your own life is you. Um, and we all make good decisions and bad decisions. And we are all the villain of somebody's story. And we're all the mm-hmm. hero of somebody's story. And we're just nuanced and complex and deep. And our lives are long enough that we can do harm and bring joy to people. And recognizing all of that is important. So I'll be the villain to the right people, at least. You know, like yeah. we, we might be the villain to the, like I'll be the villain to every evangelical pastor. Uh, I'm happy to be their villain, but but I had to step away. So I took a couple of weeks that I was like, I'm not going to reply and I'm not going to engage and I'm not going to, and I want to spend time with my, my, spending time with my kids is probably what brings me the most mm. joy. I want to spend time with them. And we went to the beach a lot for a couple of weeks. We just went to the beach a lot. And it doesn't mean that I put my baton down. It doesn't mean that I stopped fighting. It meant that I this is not, you know, this is, this is a lifelong fight. This is a lifelong battle. Yeah. And part of the battle is enjoying our lives too. Yeah. Um, if, if we're not, I remind myself all the time, if you're not enjoying your life, you lost the battle. Regardless of how much you move, the, like you progress the movement, you lost the battle. So it doesn't matter that I move the movement so much. I mean, it matters for my descendants, I guess. But for me, it doesn't matter if the battle is lost within me. You know, if it's, and then I be, I'm a traumatized person that harms others. I don't show up for my family. I don't show up for my kids. I don't show up for my, the people in my life. And you know, that's important. So, well, I talked about joy and rest and not being able to walk away from trauma. And then the emotional labor that we don't recognize sometimes that goes into our work too, Mm -hmm. you know, so um, recognizing that a lot of our work is emotional work. It's very intense emotional exhausting work yeah and that you know we may not be going to an office and doing a lot of very tangible things but our body is recognizing the amount of labor that is put into the work that we are putting um and our if we we don't learn to recognize when you know our body's saying like hey you need to just take a break um then we're hard we we are no different right trying to prove something Inside of Christianity, we were trying to prove that we were worth God's love, that we were worth God's approval. That and that was, you know, meaning the church's approval and leaders' approval and our parents' approval. Uh, It was God's approval. Well, now we're doing the same thing, but we're looking for the approval of the marginalized, and we don't. We actually don't need their approval. They don't have to give us their approval. They don't even have to clap for us at all. Um, What we need to do is be faithful to who we are and move the world towards heaven on earth 
and that includes me my personal work moves towards heaven on earth mm. uh both my yeah. personal and the collective together like you know it's it's both and and it's not selfish to take time to move my personal word sometimes it's not selfish yeah. it's right it's appropriate mm. That's incredible. That's really, really good. It's really helpful. I'm hoping other people is helping me a lot. <laughs> hoping other people listening along going, okay, yes, I can see that. I can definitely. And I have no doubt a lot of people uh, fall, fall into these traps as well. Um, see, indoctrination yeah. doesn't go away because you dismantle, like you can leave Christianity away, but if you are not dismantling the systems of oppression that are baked into it, you mm-hmm. will continue to play up to them. You know. So I see a lot of yeah. atheists, for instance, that are trying to save Christians out of Christianity. That's Christianity. Yeah. It's the same thing with a different name because yeah. nobody needs to be saved from anything. You know, yeah. what we need is better tools. Yeah. So what it's, tools do you it's still have? a like, fundamental in out dualistic kind of way of seeing everything. It's, it, yeah. And you see this again and again, like, I think this is where um, I was talking about this with someone the other day. I can't remember who, but, what I see very early on, people that deconstruct are coming out of these radically dualistic structures like church, you know, fundamental church has in, out, authority figure, gives you the kind of parameters, you tick the boxes, you're safe. If you don't, you're out there and you're going to burn in hell at some point. You come out of that and you start to deconstruct, you're learning a bit of autonomy, but what are you looking for really? You're looking for a new pastor. You're looking for a new guru. You're looking for a new whatever. And and the danger is for people like you and me um, is – it's really easy to be that without even trying. It's really easy to be a person that people go to and go, oh, just, well, what does Joe say? If she says it, that's fine. I can just tick all those boxes. I can do that and I'll be fine. And we're not actually helping people in a sense on some level. Of course, it can be really helpful to educate people and, and you know, help move them forwards in life. And, um, but not but to I guess the problem yeah. is when we're wanting to create dependency. So I don't mm. want anybody to depend on me. You know, I want people to yeah. actually. I told my husband one day, like, it's funny because my job is to give enough tools to people so that they, so that I run myself out of a job, Yeah. but my job doesn't need to exist anymore. So I don't exist anymore. I don't need to exist anymore. That's my yeah. job. My job is to run myself out of a job and not have a job yeah. um, because I don't want to create dependency for, for people, you know, like you don't need mm-hmm. to hear my opinion on anything. Could my opinion be helpful in your journey as I give tools to you? Yeah, sure. And recognizing that, you know, like I, you're, I'm just borrowing a tool from Joe, but eventually I won't need it. I have my mm. own tool and, and those are going to be great. Um, That's exciting. When we, exactly. It's so exciting, right? Yeah. I want people to stop following me because they are like nothing that she says. I don't care about anything that she says anymore. Like I know everything that she's saying. Nothing right. is new for me. She's not serving me anymore. And I want to, I want that to happen. I want to clap for that um, <laughs> because I don't want I, I don't want to create dependency. I don't want people to keep yeah. coming. You know, I want to be a tool in your journey and then you're moving on and doing your own yeah. thing and you won't remember my name. And that's yeah. completely acceptable and great. And that's what we're hoping for. Uh, but if yeah. we're creating brands here, you know, if we're creating mm-hmm. uh, uh, brands, we're creating churches. Yeah. It's so different. Yeah. We're creating churches and not sharing tools with people. Yeah. So, and the, the different, I mean, and this requires for us to step outside of capitalistic mentalities, right? Because I need to pay my bills too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. all of us. So in a way, I'm creating a brand because I need you to pay into the brand so that I can actually pay my bills. 
And then at the same time, I need to reject the brand so that we are stepping away from capitalism and so that we are stepping away from white supremacy and you don't make of me an idol anymore. Um, So we have to, you know, work inside of a messed up system, resisting the system, but trying to survive it at the same time. And it's messy. And that's why, and I think you do it too. We share all the things that we share for free, you know? Yeah, we invite absolutely. people to partner with us, but it's not mandatory. Like I don't, uh, nothing that I do is behind a paywall, really. Uh, conversations yeah. I get, like if people want to have a one-on-one with me, then I I don't demand it, but I ask them, like if you could partner with me and my time, that would be great. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't demand it, of course. Uh, but yeah. nothing that I do is behind a paywall as a way to resist white supremacy and yeah. capitalist mentality. Um, and at yep. the same time, I'm trying to raise our awareness enough to recognize, but if you don't partner with me financially, I can't keep doing my work either. Yeah, that's you it. Know? And that's you too. Yeah, so absolutely. Like, yeah. I'm not because trying to get from your trauma, my, but at the my same mentality time, is. Yeah, well, these the people I'm working with, most of the people, there's a big overlap in, in people that we work with they have spent enough time with leaders trying to get money out of them, right? I mean, like, that is, like, they do not need a new leader to look to whatever, you know, calling ourselves leaders. I I don't mean to, like, you know, try and elevate or whatever, but, like, someone that is a stepping stone for them that is is helping them move forward, um, they don't need that person then going, gotcha, you need to buy my book, or here's my conference you have to go to, or here's my Zoom call that costs three thousand dollars or you know like that, that we've done that we have done that for decades most of us you know please do not give me that again because it's just gonna give you that sinking feeling of like i know this i don't trust it i don't like that's the last thing that uh, people need um oh. and yet what's amazing is I've, I've never charged for anything for 12 years i traveled and spoke around the world paying for my own airfare hotels travel everything refusing when people said what do you require from us i says i don't require anything but I have no income. If you want to respond, by all means. And I've, I've like flown to America, done like two weeks of trips and come back with nothing. And that hurt. That hurt the bank big time. But then I've like popped to a local church that doesn't even really know me and said, oh, could you come and like help us for a leader's afternoon or something? And they've given me like three grand. And I'm like, that's the most I've ever been given in my life. And I'm like, holy crap. That's like a, that's a significant percentage of my yearly income in just one like afternoon for an hour. And you go, it all works out. People are generous. People on the whole, and people who aren't able to give, well, they would never have had someone fly to them, talk to them, spend time with them. None of these people would have gone and done that, generally speaking. It requires someone like me and you to go, no, here I am. I'm here. I'm talking to someone the other day who's suicidal. like, And I'm like, Jesus, this is not my remit. I'm like trying to point her to different resources I know of and help. And she's like, I really want to find a counselor. I'm like, that is like my number one advice you know, sit down with someone in therapy. So I can't find a single one I can afford. And I'm just like, this sucks. Accessibility healing is not spread. It's just not spread. So that's the job, right? And who's least likely to be able to make money to pay for therapy? Someone that is so depressed, so suicidal that they can't hold a job. Like, okay, where are they paying for? Right. It's like just not going to happen. Most traumatized are the ones that have the least accessibility, which yeah. upside down, like the system is upside down and that yeah. that's the system. So a way to not play the system is do what you and I do. It's like, no, yeah. I'm here and I'm available and um, I'll do it. And I'm just hoping it all works out at the end of the year, you know, 
We're yeah. getting close, Joe. It's like, you know, like you got a couple of weeks here for the end of the year. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yes. That's why I don't, yeah. I, I have to apply for, um, I had to apply for food stamps at one point. Mm. Soon after we left the church, we were like, you know, my entire resume was gone. Um, yeah. I mean, I had no uh, personal, like nobody could, I could be like, can I put you in my resume so people can call you nobody? I had nobody. No job references, no personal references, really. Um, I mean, nothing. And same with my husband. We were both like, we have nothing. We have resumes that are useless. And we are in our 30s, early 30s, and we have kids, and it looks like we are going to just figure out, you know, what we're going to do. So I would wake up at four in the morning and go do Uber till about 10, and then I'd come home and I'd take the kids, and we would do lunch and take care of things. And then my husband would leave around 5 p.m. and work till about three in the morning. And mm. did that for months, but it wasn't enough. Like Uber doesn't yeah, make it. Yeah, of course. Money. So it wasn't enough. So I was like, well, I think that we can apply to food stamps. And there was a, the amount of shame for applying to food stamps and feeling like I had failed, even though I did everything right. You know, I worked, I was working 60 hours a week at the church. He was working 80 hours a week. He didn't give us insurance. They didn't give us enough money. I was getting paid $700 a month. So we didn't have savings. We didn't have anything. Um, the church told us to leave everything for the church. So we did We literally left everything sold things like we had a house in vegas and we didn't have it anymore um so recognizing you know first i felt so much shame and then i recognized like why do i have to feel shame the system failed me i didn't yeah. fail i didn't fail and i have nothing to be ashamed of i yeah. want the food stamps i should get the food stamps and i'm not a failure and i shouldn't be embarrassed for getting the food stamps yeah. the system failed me mm -hmm. I, it just failed me and even if you didn't do all the right things but you are so traumatized by the system that you cannot hold a job or whatever it is, you know, like you hate every job that you get into because most jobs are abusive, especially at the $10 an hour level. Um, you're not failing and you're not a failure. The system is failing you. Yeah. So get the food stamps and get the medical that we don't even have in America or in the U.S. Yeah. And there is no shame in any of that. You know, the system is the one failing us. We are not the ones failing. Uh, we're absolutely not. And changing that framework in my head and allowing myself to not feel shame and guilt for something that I didn't ought to feel shame and guilt. You know, like it is what it is. Um, yeah. I find myself in this situation and um, I am doing the best I can with the tools I have and the accessibility to resources that I have. I'm, I'm, I'm generally doing the best I can. Yeah. And I believe that's true for most all people. They are doing yeah. the best they can for most of marginalized people. Let me rephrase that. They are doing the best they can with the tools they have and the accessibility to resources that they have. They are absolutely doing the best they can. Yeah. So now, if you have privilege and you're choosing not to do better and you're choosing not to go to therapy and you're choosing not, then that's a choice. That's different, you know? But I'm talking about mm -hmm. here, marginalized yeah. people, that's different. If the Queen of England chooses not to go to the doctor and you know get health checkups then she'd be dead um yeah. but if somebody who doesn't have insurance and in the u.s at least it would cost them hundreds and hundreds of dollars to go chooses not to go because they'd rather feed their kids um they didn't fail they no. had no choice the system failed them yeah yeah it's I what we were talking about and why i, I, I forgot as well. just, i literally just as you passed it like i'm like 
Where did we start with that? That was, that was so good. <laughs> I don't even know. We had so many first. I mean, the, talking of system failing though, I mean, like, it's, it's heartbreaking to see, um, the, those affected by the system end up so affected by the system that they end up fighting against changes to it. Like, I guess one of the things I've noticed is, um, I remember back in the day when I was a bit more of a fundamental Christian, I was a bit black and white. I, I went on this like tour, spoke in churches all over um, America and Europe talking about women should be speaking from the church. Very ironic, I know, because I'm a guy, but these churches wouldn't let a woman come and speak about that. So I was like, well, I'll come and I'll try and like, you know, bring about change, you know, give some good theological insights to why women could teach and all this different stuff. And, and it, it struck me about four or five churches in, I was like, what is going on where every church got pissed off? There was enough pissed off people lined up to ask for prayer at the end. They didn't want prayer. They just wanted to give me a good, like, you know, telling off. It was consistently all the women telling me that that wasn't true. It wasn't the men. Now, the men, I did speak to plenty of men that didn't like it as well. But I was so blown away. I was like, I, and this is definitely white saviors and kicking in on like a, a whole other level of like, but I'm here to like give you a voice, right? I mean, what is that, right? But like, but on some level, I'm like, what is happening? And, and I got upset. But I, I think of, you know, um, people that voted for Trump last time and, and you look at the reasons they have and all sorts of different things. There's all sorts of different dynamics in there. And I'm not, I, I'm not too black and white. I, I I cannot say that someone that votes for Trump is an evil or bad person. We don't know the story they have where they're going, actually, how do I feed my kids? If I vote Hillary will starve to death. I mean, absolutely ridiculous, but that's their, their story. But generally speaking, a huge portion of people that supported Trump were massively affected negatively by Trump um, yeah. and have consistently been massively affected negatively by voting Republican. Um, now, I'm not saying Republican bad, Democrat good. Again, there's probably good components to both, bad components to both. But it feels like there's something about us being able to buy into, and you mentioned this, you know, even a person of color can have white supremacy, can can have these kind of components, but in, in like, what is that? How do we protect ourselves from these systems? Like, what do we, how do we recognize these systems in ourselves? I mean, it, it, it's, it's so huge, uh, but you know. Heartbreaking, like seeing someone marginalized that has internalized the oppression and so they mm -hmm. uphold it. Uh, it's the Candace Owens, right? Uh, yeah. The me inside of Christian uh, white supremacist churches. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the women that you are talking to that hold up patriarchy. Um, and all of that is for that. Somebody actually asked me recently about what I thought about Candace Owens and why I never say anything about her. I'm like, what am I supposed to say? Like, until I've held every white person accountable, I'm not going to hold a black woman for trying to survive white supremacy by cozying up to it. Mm. That is a coping mechanism. She's trying to survive. That's all she's doing. And that's what women that are upholding patriarchy are trying to do too. They are trying to survive patriarchy by upholding it because they think if I cozy up to patriarchy, and obviously all of this is not conscious again, but if I cozy up to patriarchy and I uphold it, then the patriarchs will protect me. Uh, that's not true uh, at all. You know, it's the same with white supremacy. If I cozy up to the white supremacists in power, then when it, com like when, when it comes to it, White supremacy will protect me. Nope, it will not. It's it's built to destroy you. That's it. 
Um, yeah. But it's a coping mechanism and it's a valid coping mechanism. So I will not hold the Candace Owens accountable for trying to survive a system in the way that she can survive it, in the way that she, you know, it's it's in the way that she can cope with the tools that she's been given, with the knowledge she's been given. I won't hold her accountable until I actually hold the people accountable that are benefiting from the system for real, like really benefiting yeah. from this. So I'm not going to hold her accountable before I hold Trump and every other white cis hetero man accountable first, you know? Mm. So, but I see a lot of people that because of our biases want to jump on the marginalized identity because of course, Candace Owens gets a lot of attention uh, because she's a black woman. They are tokenizing her. They are tokenizing yeah. her to be able to say, see, we're not racist. We are not patriarchal. We are not sexist. Like look at these black woman that supports us. So of course she gets attention. But before you want to run an attack, Candace Owens, I want to see you hold every single white yeah. male pastor that has supported Trump vocally, verbally, and overtly accountable. And I don't yeah. see that. I don't see enough people holding the white wealthy pastors accountable as I see mm -hmm. the ones jumping for Candace Owens's throat. You know, I leave Candace Owens alone. For the most part, black people get her. Like, they hold her accountable and it is their place. That's not our lane. Mm. It's just not our lane. Yeah. So I focus on the ones that have more power than me, societally speaking, and not yeah. less power than me. And that's nuanced, right? Because Candace mm -hmm. Owens officially has kind of more power than me. But societally, she's a black woman and I am not. I mm -hmm. am a brown woman. Yeah. And I need to recognize that. And it is not my place to hold her accountable. So yeah. you're a man. It is not your place to hold women accountable for patriarchal. Yeah. They are trying to survive, but it yeah. is your place to hold every single man accountable, you know, yeah. for patriarchal sentiments, yeah. for, like for sexism, like absolutely. Yeah. So, so recognizing those dynamics too, and recognizing like, that's not my place and I'm going to stay on my lane. Mm. Uh, I'm absolutely going to stay on that's my really lane. That's really interesting. And Islamophobia, for instance, people all the time, like Christians are the most Islamophobic people I've ever met. Um, and they, every time I say Christianity is bad, they go, but what about Muslims? Right. <laughs> Let, Muslims are taking care of their own. Yeah. One. And two, Christianity continues to be the majority, yeah. you know, religious adjacency in the yeah. West. So we're going to focus on the ones that have the most power and not the ones that have the least power, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and Muslims don't have the least power, but don't have a lot of power compared to Christians in right. the West. In a random city in America, you're not generally thinking, oh, Muslims are pulling all the strings here and running everything. Oh. And if you're not a Muslim, you're suffering. You know, like that's not a conversation oh. that's happening anywhere in America. No. So if you want to like, and, and Muslims are taking care of their own, they hold their own accountable, you know, like mm -hmm. black people hold their own accountable. Like I am very intentional about holding Latin Americans accountable um, so we're holding our own accountable. Women yeah. are very good at holding our own accountable. We got it. Um, yeah. But if you're so quick to want to hold marginalized identities accountable, then you're missing that you're missing. You're you're running into a lane that is not yours. Mm -hmm. you know, like yeah. what's your lane? What is your privilege? And then you call your own to account. Yeah. That's that's yeah. your lane. Stay on your lane. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard sometimes because there are times that I'm like, I seriously wish I could. And it's a rule that I imposed on myself. Nobody told me to. Um, but I sometimes I'm like, I wish I would have imposed my rule, that rule, because I really have a lot to say about what Candace Owens, yes. you know, like I have so much to say. But then sure enough, what she's saying is being like, she's just repeating a lot of white supremacist. Sure. Nonsense. Yeah. Well, so there's always a pastor. There is always a politician. 
um, that he's saying it to. And that's my focus. That's, yeah. that's where I go. Yeah, that's so good. I, 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 I can't remember that time in my life very well. I look back and I'm like, I, I feel like I was maybe self-aware enough not to, to observe, but not to act on that in any particular. I think there was plenty of men. I, I spent all my time usually with men and, you know, the pastors meetings and things like that in between meetings and stuff anyway. So they were all men laced and especially in these churches, right? Um, so there's plenty of those conversations, but I do recognize that. I reckon, I think I've messaged you quite a while back now. Um, because my friend was constantly sending me messages of a of black friend of his who was constantly going, oh, I don't know what Black Lives Matter is about and it's this and this and this. And I was like, I, I don't know what to do. Like here, here's a black person that this, my friend is constantly going, look, 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 look. He's wanting me to comment. And I'm like, how do I even begin? And, I, and we had this conversation and you said basically the same thing. And I think that's really um, helpful because I have noticed in me still lingering traces of racism when I see that going on. And it is, there's, there's, it might not be exclusively a racist, uh, component. There might be other components in there, but there's a whole bun- a bunch of components there where I immediately start dehumanizing this person. We right. do it with so many people, but I'm like, Oh, so in my crusade to uh, elevate uh, a person of color, whatever the race to a level playing field with me, a white person, I see someone that's saying a different message who is a person of color and I immediately dehumanize them. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm playing, I'm playing like 4D chess here. Like, what am I doing? You know, I'm like, this is insane. Um, and, and, that's a great definition. This yeah. is 4D chess at this point. This is not, my brain can't. It's, it's, it's wild. But I do think it's important to talk about that stuff because I think we are, we are so quick to do that. We're so quick to jump to our whateverisms. We're so quick to jump to our, uh, you know, our exceptions and focus on some random little bunny hole rather than our whole world that is full of an issue that we can be dealing with. Um, and, and I think it's, it's just, it's, it's huge, you know, like go back to this, this concept of being, swallowed up by systems but i think of you know capitalism is a great example as well of people that are not benefiting from capitalism capitalism is getting worse people are getting to the point where they are benefiting less from capitalism as time goes on there's more people using food banks there's more people under the you know yeah lots of people's income are going up but the comparative is massive and what that equates to the buying power the ability to have a home the whatever And, and you look at these things and yet Again, I see people that are foot on the neck, never managing to climb the social rung, fighting tooth and nail for a capitalistic society, for whatever, you know, they are pulling themselves up their bootstraps. I know far too many people that would push that narrative a lot. And they're not millionaires, right? They're not, you know, billionaires or any of that. They're lucky if they're making 20 grand, 30 grand a year. Um, and, I just, it shows this capacity for our, ourselves to blind ourselves from that, that, um, concept. And again, I mean, it goes right back to the first question I asked. It's like, how do we wake up? How do we do this? How do we, how are we elevating society? Because it feels like we're getting less able to have nuanced conversations. It feels like that, that, whether it's our methods of communication, social media, it seems to be pushing more extreme conversation um, rather than the the kind of conversation that wakes us up. Like, do you have thoughts on that? Do you have thoughts on where we're heading? If social media is the right place to be having these conversations, what kind of changes needs to occur? Like, what do you, what do you see going on in general? 
I think very, I mean, I think actually social media is giving, it's it's a double-edged sword, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it pushes capitalism really well, you know, and it pushes notions of white supremacy really well too. Uh, you're, you're constantly comparing, like you have the uh, capacity to be constantly comparing yourself. I'm thinking, I was watching, you know, they tell you like what to watch now on Instagram a lot. Yeah. And there was this video of a girl who had thin lips. And I gen- I have kind of thin lips. And she was making them thicker. And my, my thought was like, this is ridiculous. This is the crap that we put online. Like, make your lips thicker. As though lips are inherently wrong. <laughs> lips thicker or thinner. Like, we cannot move from thin lips are the best and thick lips are wrong to thick lips are good. And like, we cannot keep doing this binary thing. We have right. to move on that. Um, but at the same time... Social media is giving us accessibility to the other. So I would have never been able to sit down to learn from a trans person before uh, because I didn't know where to find a trans person. You cannot, like, as soon as you leave evangelicalism or, you know, toxic Christianity, you don't know where you're going to make friends with a trans person. Like, how? You know, where do you go? Um, But social media allowed that for me. It allowed me to go into spaces of trans people, especially trans people for me. Um, and to just sit and listen and learn from mm. them. And that accessibility to the other allowed me allowed for me to stop dehumanizing them in the ways that I had been conditioned to dehumanize yeah. them. You know, no longer could I continue to tell the story that, well, they are these or they are bad or they not I couldn't because now I saw him, I saw her, I was listening to them. I was I I, I couldn't. It was I would have been lying as mm. I was listening and learning from them and hearing their stories. It was no longer this person that I created in my head. So that accessibility to the other, I think it's an excellent weapon um, mm. to fight, you know, this otherism that we have. Yeah. That's why I I just recently uploaded to Instagram uh, an entire series stories on dualism, because dualism is one of the things that we have to deconstruct um, all of us and decolonize from, really, you know, this this. We, we, regardless of whether we're Christians or not, we have been shoved into it's one or the other, it's black or white, it's good or bad, it's, you know, like women or men. Mm-hmm. Um, and this binary thinking has to go away. Like we have to be able to think more nuanced in more nuanced ways than that. We have to be able to reimagine, to reactivate our brain, to be able to think beyond the things that we've been given. Because uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's it. We've been indoctrinated into you have been given this and you have to accept it and you have these two choices pick one it's like no i can reimagine and i can pick whatever i want and it can be a buffet of things if i want to yeah. so every time i talk about capitalism they go well socialism isn't better and i every time i respond who mentioned socialism yeah did i mention but it's the other option there's no other option it's this or this it couldn't even be a mix it couldn't be it's and just this or this okay like it couldn't be, and people tell me like, okay, then what do you think would work? And I'm like, I can't answer that because we yeah. don't have answers for all communities. Yeah. We have to sit down in our communities and say, what's going to work for us here and now? Yeah. What do we have to do for us in where we, like considering where we are, considering our people, considering our demographics, what do we have to do that works for us? Because if I just say, this is the system that is going to work and we are going to just unroll it all over the world. I'm going to be really seriously harming some people in India mm-hmm. and in Colombia and even in New York because what works in San Diego works in San Diego, you know? Yeah. Um, so even like I just recently, I'm very proud of myself. 
I just recently became a board member of my daughter's school. So we had to- Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Congratulations. I didn't think I was going to win, but I did. And, uh, and we had the first meeting and it's, uh, it's seven, it's seven of us, five are white people. And then we have my friend and I who ran, they had two openings and we ran together and we won. And having all these conversations, I it was it was a three hour meeting and we just sat down and the discussion was what does our school need? Not what is the state saying, not what is the city allowing us to do. We comprehend that we have some limitations considering all of that. Sure. But at the same time, what does our school need? So San Diego officially didn't close the schools yet, but we did. Right. We chose to close the school after having that conversation. This conversation was yesterday, the school closed today. Not because the city told us to, not because we have to by law, but because it's the best thing we can do for the students that we have in the community that we have. Mm -hmm. And what if we all could have those conversations instead of being like, well, I'm doing what the government told me to do. Well, I'm doing what, you know, the my yeah. boss told me to do. But instead, we could sit down and say, like, this isn't working for us. Can we reimagine? Yeah. But the systems of oppression have that purpose to get you to not think anymore. You don't mm-hmm. have to think anymore. It is just a cookie cutter. This is your life. And you either accept it or you become a criminal, depending on how much privilege you have, right? Right. Uh, because we're all criminals. Just not all of us get to pay for our crimes. <laughs> um, so so what if we instead kind of open, uh, awaken again? That's why mm-hmm. the job is to awaken, to say, like, I get to reimagine. Yeah. And that's what, what, in a way, that's what you and I have done with our careers, right? Like you have to have a career and it has to look this way and you have to work certain hours and you have to do this. And I was like, no, I don't. I don't. Yeah. And I refuse. And chances, the probabilities of me getting a regular job ever again are slim to none. Like I have to be, yeah. I would like, um, I've burned a lot I, of bridges as far as career paths go. <laughs> yeah. I would probably have to go to Starbucks and be like, can I be a barista? And they would probably yeah. fire me really quickly after because I'm <laughs> like being quiet or, you know. Uh, Do you ever fantasize about that? I, I always a little bit. Every now and again, I think I kind of like to work in a supermarket and occasionally stack shelves and occasionally stand at the till and just be like, hey, how was your day? And have nice small talk. And like, I'm like, there's just nothing in my brain. When I come home, there's nothing going, oh, what, how am I going to reply to that big conversation or what? big topic am I going to bring up next? I'm literally, I, I'm like, oh, did I stack that can of tuna the right way around? That's not going through my head. I'm like, And I'm not meaning to belittle that job. It's a, it's a crazy job, but it's a, it's a different job as far as headspace. And I, I, I on some level, every now and again, I kind of fantasize because I know that's my option. When I leave this, if I leave this, that's where I'm going. <laughs> um, and I'll probably make about the same money to be honest with you. Um, but way harder work, many more hours, maybe, but a totally different headspace. I'm always like, oh, that does sound nice sometimes. Anyway, sorry to sides, but. <laughs> I, I, think, I think about becoming a bartender. Like, I think yeah. that's my, that's my job. I'm like, I could be a bartender. Like I could be, and I tell my husband sometimes when I have bad days, I'm like, I just, why don't we just, let's become bartenders. I love you know? it. Do you think you can do the spinning uh, bottles? And... Yeah. <laughs> and let's work off days. Like you, I can work throughout the week. So it's a smaller crowd. And then you work on the weekend. So it's a bigger crowd. And then we meet a lot of people and, and he's like, we're not, you would last a week. Yeah. You know? it's, such a, it's such a romanticized vision we have of these things as well, isn't it? <laughs> the moment that we're like, Oh, I'm going to be late. And they're like, then you're fired. You know, like there is no freedom inside of the system to be able to be like, I'm not coming into this. Yeah. Um, and that freedom so funny. That I, but we can't reimagine we really can you know yeah. i uh we can 
I, I, I follow all these accounts on Instagram of people that uh, go dumpster diving. I've considered that too. I think that'll be fun. Uh, not necessarily fun, fun, but it does sound fun though. Cool. Yeah. yeah so, that's yeah. the word. Yeah. So if I you can I, get I, out of the headset fun for sure. Like if you get out of like, Oh, this is dirty or, or dangerous or, you know, this is fun. Uh, but I, I follow all these accounts that, you know, like go dumpster diving and they find all these things that are wild to me. Like things I'm like, we throw away so much mm-hmm. all the time and we don't care. Like we are so wasteful and irresponsible and it's just gross. And I was talking about that with Caleb and just saying like, what would it look like to say like, you know what? We don't have to have strawberries all year long. And we actually don't, I don't have to have access to certain foods that just don't grow here. Like we don't have to, we would be fine Mm -hmm. if I don't have access to those foods. What would it look like to say, you know, like we can live differently, like our food to make laws that say your food have to come for 50 miles around you. And that's it. Like become sustainable societies figure out a way that's how people lived for years and hundreds and hundreds of years and it worked and it was fine you know so Mm -hmm. how can we say like okay let's become sustainable like in our own communities and what would it look like to say what do you want to do and allow people to do what they want to do uh and at the same time say but you're a part of a community so um like i always think of i learned this in college we were um i had to take a class on administration like business administration And so it was with the business school and we were looking at all these Japanese companies and how a lot of Japanese companies, and I don't know if this is true still, like I went to college a long time ago, but a lot of Japanese companies don't have cleaning services. They don't have custodians um, because everybody cleans. So they just go in a rotation. First, everybody's like responsible for their work space. So everybody cleans their own workspace, but the bathrooms and all of that. They just have a rotation and they just clean it together and they do that mm-hmm. in school too. So they don't have a lot of custodians in school. They have somebody that is in charge of facilities, but in general, the cleaning is the students and the teachers and the staff do the cleaning together. And I was like, we don't need, like cleaning is not a fun job. Nobody no. wakes up one morning and says, my dream in life is to be a custodian for a school mm-hmm. of teachers. That sounds like, yes, nobody you know, no. so what if we got rid of all those jobs that nobody wants to do, and instead we did those that nobody wants to, to get there, you know, as communities yeah. and made more responsible for our own spaces, and then everybody got to do jobs that they loved and they were passionate about, yeah. and they, you know, we get to do both the really mm-hmm. shitty jobs and also the ones that we love so much and that we're passionate about. Like, what? Why can we not reimagine society? And we can. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing it and I refuse to walk back. Like, I refuse to. And I'm raising all these children that I am demanding that they reimagine too. Not demanding, but in a way, inviting them all the time. Like, why? Yeah. Why does it have to be that way? And why couldn't you do this and that? Why? You know, why? Um, yeah. So, why can't we not just reimagine and allow? Like, there is so much fear to think outside of the binary. Yeah. Uh, but, the, the only thing outside of the binary is the unknown and the unknown is not bad. The mm-hmm. unknown is just unknown. And so feeling the yeah. freedom, like let's just step into the unknown. What's the worst that can happen? It cannot be worse than having 3 billion people in below the poverty level. It cannot be yeah. worse than 20,000 children dying of hunger a day. Like yeah. it cannot be worse than that. Yeah. It's, it, it's so heartbreaking. The, the dualism of, you know, we, I have these conversations, I have these conversations with people like my father-in-law is very, very, um, he, he, he's high up in a financial company. And so like, he's, he's very, 
uh, capitalistic mindset, very right wing in like how economies should be run and things like that. And, and there's a lot of sensibility and, and, and sense to a lot of those things. I'm not saying it's, it's foolish by any means. The guy is a much smarter guy than me when it comes to something like that. Um, I'd want to put him in charge of my finances before I was, you know, um, but it, the conversations you have something like that and you go, Oh, uh, did you see Spain just started experimenting with more um, basic income? And then you start to realize that immediately that's the most terrifying conversation. It's a, whoa, 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 that's, that's socialism. That's, that's, that's too left wing. That's, you know, like who would clean our toilets? And it's like, well, we could clean our own toilets. You know, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you know, there's this, is this immediate, like, you know, the society will fall apart. Um, but what's interesting is, there's no conversation of like, okay, could we find a middle ground? Could we find a ground where we did, you know, do something with, with both these? Can you recognize that some societies have no options right now? So Spain was a great example. It had 25% before COVID, 25% unemployment on people under 35, I think it was. If you're under 35, you're just like one in four chance of not getting a job. Um, so what are you going to do? Right? right. I mean, and, and now post COVID, I mean, things are getting crazy and, and more societies are starting to go, I'm going to push some basic income here. Um, but it's the thing of having a conversation with someone where you go, Oh, I'd like, um, I'd like people to have free healthcare. Oh, socialism. I'm like, well, hold on. We, we allowed socialism over here and over there and over here. I'm talking about people that sit down and go, well, what do we need? That's already happening. It's just right. happening at the very top with like 10 people instead of, 400 million people having a conversation bit by bit in their own groups. And so the very top people start having a conversation going, what do we need? Oh, we need to bail out our billion dollar business. Okay. But hasn't that socialism? Ah, no one's going to care. Right? Right. Uh, but what about the healthcare? Oh, this group, we don't want free healthcare. That doesn't benefit us on any level. And until the conversation starts trickling down, um, that's not going to happen. But it's the inability to go, well, that, that's socialism. So what if socialism plus capitalism makes right. a new ism. Can there be a third ism? Can there be a third way? No, yeah, not, a, not in a dualistic society, right? And, and that's, I wrote something recently and I said, oppressive capitalism. I use the sentence oppressive capitalism. Mm. And the person, ah, I bet you can guess the gender of the person. This person <laughs> came to correct me and said, uh, capital, capitalism is always oppressive. You don't need to make the qualifier. And I said, no, that's mm. not true. The reason why I put oppressive capitalism is because there are tenets of capitalism that still serve us and that still serve some communities and some societies. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that the, capi the capitalism that we have in America, specifically in the U.S. today, is oppressive altogether. But that doesn't mean that there are aspects of capitalism that have served certain communities and certain, you know, if, if we look at the history of how we got to capitalism, it was supposed to be a solution. And there yeah. were aspects of it that were a solution. It was you know, a big advancement for a lot of society. Absolutely. In, and all around the world, a lot of people benefited. And this, it's because we have to be good or bad. Like capitalism mm -hmm. bad. No, there are aspects of capitalism that we can rescue and that we can use in certain societies. And there are aspects that we have to let go of everywhere, sure. Mm. Um, and there are aspects of everything. It's the same with Christianity. You don't have to let go of all of it. There are aspects of it that are beautiful and that we yeah. get to hold on to. If we want to, we also don't have to. Um, but it's the same with everything. We we have to be able to deconstruct this desire to be inside of dualistic mentalities and binaries, you know, binaries all the time. Because also we are unfair, right? Because in the binaries, we're always good. We're always right. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're always, we're always no better. Uh, so that keeps us unhealed too, because we're mm. never confronted with perhaps not, you know, perhaps there is 
more nuance here and it's more complicated. And perhaps this is right for me, but not mm. right for you. And I have to be able to acknowledge that and consider that and be able to find a common ground, you know, with, with other people. So yeah. it, the conversations have to, we have to evolve more. And I think we have, I, I really think societally, yeah. we have evolved through history. Like we can yeah. look at history and we can say, yeah, we've evolved. The amount of people that die by violence today is a lot less compared to the amount of people that were dying by violence in the 19, in the early 1900s. Mm. So we are generally evolving. The amount of people that have access to medical care is a lot higher than the amount of people that didn't. Um, you know, literacy rates are much higher worldwide, that is. Yeah. Access to food and access to water. A lot of these things. The, the problem is that today we are we have more information. We know more. So in the yeah. 1900s, they had no idea what children in Bangladesh, that didn't exist, that what children in India, what children in Latin America, what children, even what children in rural America, where or rural U.S. Uh, were experiencing. But today we know what everybody's going through. Yeah. So it feels like it's worse, yeah. but we are yeah. evolving. And this, this ability to know the story of the other is going to help us to continue to evolve. Because mm. now I don't just go to the store and buy clothes that I don't know the condition of the person creating them. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. I absolutely, yeah. so I refuse to absolutely refuse to buy clothes that I know for a fact are being, you know, somebody was abused and um, yeah. mistreated and it's literally a slave so that I could get that dress. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we become more conscious, but I, I wouldn't have known that in 1902. I just, I yeah. wouldn't have known that. So yeah. we're doing yeah. better, but there's a lot of work, yeah. you know, to the, to the raising of the collective consciousness. Yeah. Um, the good thing is that, the more the people that are the most set in their ways, the most uh, resistance to, to change are older people, naturally, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and we all die. Yeah. So hopefully more younger people, <laughs> more younger people are being more aware and more conscious yeah. and we're moving your society. I was telling, who was I talking to? I don't remember, but I was talking to probably a mutual and I was talking about how just like divorce was a really bad evil for hundreds mm. of years for the church and just like miscegenation and interracial marriage was absolutely prohibited and it was evil. Uh, and now we are like, that's totally, everybody can marry. I mean, there are some churches, but for sure, they're fringe. In general, most people think like, sure, people from different races can marry and getting a yeah. divorce is appropriate and it's fine. Uh, you know, depending, but whatever. Um, we will get to a place where the church has to, not because yeah. they want to, but they have to accept gay marriage yeah. and they have to accept gay people because they have to, because they're yeah. going to be, otherwise they're going to lose all their money because yeah. enough of us is, are going to be like, I won't come back unless you accept all these things. So, mm -hmm. and that will start changing the dynamics of church. I, 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 that's what I'm, I mean. I see the dynamics of church changing, you know, yeah. I'm just, it does. It changes consistently in different ways. And I think it's fascinating to me. There's a dynamic in human nature that we t are terrified of change. We're terrified of the unknown. We're terrified of moving forwards when we generally speaking set our ideal in the past, um, mm -hmm. which is the nature of fundamentals. And we want to move backwards, not forwards. And so we fear a forward momentum. But what's interesting is when we do, so the, the danger is, you know, you look at something like, um, Oh gosh, trying to help me find something. Interracial marriage. We're terrified. What on earth will happen? My gosh, the end of the world, right? And, and people were genuinely really, and, and I don't want to minimize the fact that 
for whatever reason, they had legitimate trauma and terror wrapped up around a, a, what is today a ridiculous notion and to, and then should have been a ridiculous notion and was a ridiculous notion to many people. Um, I don't want to minimize the, the horrendous issues that that created. Um, but what's fascinating about it is 10 years after, no one really cares because what happened? Nothing. But the world got better for a lot of people. And for all the people that were scared, nothing got worse. Nothing. Maybe they, some racist people were like, well, I don't want to see the eroding of the perfect white nation or whatever. You know, I mean, of course there's those people, but on the whole, most people that bought into this concept, you know, the socialism is evil. And then really, if we, if we made healthcare free for everyone in America and it didn't put up your taxes, didn't cost you anything and everyone kind of like life was the same, 10 years from now, people would be like, yeah, like, don't take that away from us. We, we want, we like that. And, and there's this kind of like slow burn that I mean, I'm seeing in the church in Europe, more churches are starting to accept gay marriage. More churches are, um, letting go of a lot of things that are still very hot topic in America. But even a lot of churches in America are starting to open those doors. Um, I guess there is this level of privilege, you know, like I'm talking about interracial marriage doesn't affect me. I'm married to a white person, right? And so if I was living 60 years ago or whatever it is in the UK, I don't actually know the uh, the date in the UK where that changed. It was probably shockingly late as well. Um, but that wouldn't have affected me. And so there's a level of privilege of, of, of letting this, and I have been guilty of this. I said in the last podcast I was doing with Kari Leek, uh, I, I was saying like, there is an element where kids are just, you talk to kids there, they are less uh, explicitly racist, of course, but even implicitly racist, I think there is less. Now, it's still probably very systemically in there, but there's less. Is, is there an element of like, these things, we give it 50, 100, 200, 500 years, we're kind of naturally going to grow out of a lot of this as a society. That is an extraordinarily privileged position to hold when you're in the place where it doesn't really affect you. Um, it's, it's a lot different if you're a black person that's living today in America to go, well, a hundred years from now, black people will, you know, be able to get the same level of education and jobs and, uh, lifestyle and homes and whatever. That doesn't feel so great, I'm sure. Um, and yes, we should do everything we can to go, okay, let's change 500 years to a hundred years or let's change a hundred years to 50 years or let, let's move it forward somehow. But how, how do we, how do we navigate that dynamic? Because it is it is a reality that society is moving, society is progressing. Um, is is that something we should be leaning into? Is that something that we should be focusing on? Do we focus our attention on the young? Do we focus? You know, I, I talk to teenagers, and they have no problem if, like, you know, me going, "Hey, you got some racism there." Like, you want to talk about it? Like, yeah, okay, yeah, gosh, is that for white fragility? And I'm like, yeah, you know your stuff already, basically. You know, like they're more knowledgeable than me on most things. Like, should we be leaning into these things and focusing less on getting grandma than <laughs> I don't know? Well, it's both and. I think that we probably should let be should let grandma be at this point because they're you know like it's too it's too hard. However, uh, if we're talking about a 40-year-old with three children, she's shaping minds. Yeah. Both conversations need to keep happening, you know? That's why I got involved in the school. Uh, I am super involved in my daughter's school, like, too much. Like, this is, I'm there all the time. Like, when when it was not COVID, I was teaching classes. They were free. My husband. You wonder why they voted for you, really, you know? Everybody call, like calls him Coach Caleb, and he knows the names of all the students. Like we're super involved because we believe yeah. that education is very important, and schools are very important. And and we wanted to make sure that our kids were in a school. Like we didn't want to homeschool. Uh, we wanted our kids to be exposed to different people. 
And that means, you know, sending them to school with a lot of white kids too, and a lot of kids or families that are Trump supporters and all the things, and that's fine. And being able to expose them so they can have these conversations. Um, but I, we've been talking at, you know, with my friend and talking about what I would love to see in the school is not just engagement with the kids and not just looking at the academics and the um, curriculum that has to be challenged, the history curriculum, all curriculums have to be challenged. Mm. Um, so we're, we're having these conversations about staff trainings and about all of that, but then we're talking like, okay, is there going to, how are we going to engage parents? Cause we have to engage parents because they are the ones at the end of the day, yep. shaping the minds of these kids, you know? Um, so having the, like both and, um, like how do we engage both? And I, some of the friends of my kids are full on Trump supporters, um, mm. and I, I'm public and like, um, my voice is public enough that they know I'm not. You know, sure. yep. being able to sit with them and engage with them, not for the purpose of um, we're probably not going to become best friends, you know, uh, but our kids are best friends because kids mm. see the world differently. And so I'm going to have to sit with them and we're going to have to have conversations and we're going to have to figure things out. And I don't want to shy away from that and only engage with people that agree with me yeah. because then we're not moving this thing forward, you know? Yeah. Um, so so I think that we can do both and and recognize like what are, what are the spaces where I can have influence. So I, one of the spaces I could have influence was this school. Like my children, I have four children. I'm going to be involved in schools for a very long time. <laughs> like a good portion of my life is going to be taking and bringing children from schools. So I might as well get involved and you know try to change yeah. things out of that. And so recognizing what is the level, what, where do I have influence and how can I change that? And it's not just with your family. Like, you know, you can have conversations at work. I have a good friend that works at a big, big company here in San Diego and she is a administrative assistant. So officially speaking, she doesn't have a lot of power, but she does push a lot of conversations, you know, and um, yeah. they've been able to have all of these really cool seminaries and really cool conversations and to push some um, policies inside of the of the whole entire company because of the conversations that she's pushed awesome. forward. So being able to say like, okay, what is it? Where do I have influence and how mm. can I use that influence? Um, you know, so if, if you don't have children, I mean, it's going to be different, right? Um, yeah, so you're going to have peers that do have children or peers that are just young enough, you know, that are shaping other people's minds. So yeah. if, if they have influence, I have to engage them. So I yeah. might engage grandma if grandma is Margaret Thatcher and, you know, is the prime minister. Yeah, yeah. I will sit down with Margaret Thatcher if she was the prime minister right now. <laughs> and I would have a lot of words for her. A lot, a lot of words for her. I can imagine. Uh, yes, because her actions affected millions of people, they you did. know. So I think it depends on level of influence. So a 40-year-old yeah. kids has influence, therefore I have to engage. Um, grandma who talks to her friends who just think the same way as her probably not as much influence and that's okay. And you know, like, what am I going to do? Um, but mm. yeah, if people have influence, I have to engage them. I, you know, yeah. we have to, we have to engage them and, and recognizing those things and understanding that our time is limited. So I want to use my time in the best possible way with the, with the people that are going to make the most change, you know, that yeah. able to make the most change. Um, that, that Absolutely. matters. Yeah. Okay. Talking of limited time, we're, we're at a two hour mark. Have you got time for one more question? I okay, good. I, I don't. I don't want to steal your whole day from you. It's still early for you. Um, I'm out of my day. So, uh, 
I, I am intrigued by you. You mentioned, you know, we, we look at the world and it's evolving and it's growing and we're getting to be more uh, inclusive and loving and we're raising the poverty level. We are um, less people are starving, less people are thirsty, less people are dying of preventable illnesses. I mean, there is a progression that is phenomenal on every metric apart from environmental. We're making positive strides. I mean, it's astonishing. Um, but... Um, it, it feels to me there's a danger and, and I am a hundred percent guilty of this. And I'm, I'm asking myself this and I'm trying to juggle and, and war with this that are framing for moving towards a better thing. So a lot of the things I mentioned are just clear kind of metrics, less people dying. Good. Right. I think we all, most cultures across the board, look around and go, that's a good thing. But it feels like a lot of our metrics for progression and evolution of society and growth um is framed through a white supremacist kind of lens there is a it's a all countries moving towards becoming america or you know or britain or or whatever it is right and and so it is uh we go into ghana or nigeria or indonesia and we say okay you're doing great this is some great that you've got that 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 but we don't like your god so that needs to change or we don't like that you do business this way that needs to change or and 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 the thing is there's things in that where it's like, oh, you don't have this medicine for that thing. Here, have this medicine. Like, there's components where it's like, no, of course, of course, there, there's some countries that are doing something better than other countries that is a very measurable thing. Um, and I don't want to take that off the table, right? We're not going to be dualistic about it. But at the same time, in this gray area, there does feel like there's some sort of white supremacist kind of component. H- how do we, how do we navigate um, helping people around the world, maybe in our neighborhood, but I'm thinking even more globally where the differences are so stark and obvious. Um, how do we help people move forward and grow and evolve um, without presuming that I'm the one that you should be growing towards or, or, or I've arrived or, you know, like if you just were more like me or my society or my group, then you'd be right. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about, right? When we're talking about something like white supremacy. I mean, Colombia, it's better, like one of the metrics for our growth is that more people are speaking English. Mm. How nonsensical is that? Not that more people are bilingual. No, that more people are speaking English specifically, which is ridiculous. Like, why? Why not Mandarin? Actually, Mandarin would be more helpful for a lot of people. That makes more sense. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Especially considering of the future. Like, you know, like there there are things that, like conversations that we have to have. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it... we have framed progress and we have framed um, success inside of white supremacist notions of, of societies. Um, so like, that's where we have to reframe, like, what does it mean to have a healthy society? Because a healthy, if you look at the U S this is not a healthy society. Mm. Like U S citizens have a very toxic relationship with the government. It's a toxic abusive relationship. That's, yeah. that's what. I mean. uh, now, does it mean that, you know, other because when I say that, people are like, well, they move back to Colombia. I'm like, it doesn't mean that Colombia doesn't. Like, calm down. Um, so I think that the conversation that we have to have is what does it mean to have success? What does it mean to have a, a, a good society? And a good society is a society where nobody, nobody uh, is lacking in, in basic rights. You know, like no, everybody has their basic needs met. That's the words that those are the words I wanted to use. Everybody has their basic needs met. Uh, that's a good society. That's a healthy society. 
And unfortunately, even though we want to say like, oh, the way to arrive at that is these four things, that's not how it works. Uh, every single one of them have to decide what that looks like, because what that mm. means for the Philippines uh, being, uh, uh, you know, at islands and having the spread that they have is completely different than what, what it means for Colombia, uh, where we are all a country inside of a continent. And it's, it's completely different. And we have to have different conversations for those things. Um, so what does it look like for our own communities? And I actually think that, I mean, and this is just me, like, you know, I, I don't know, I'm just like thinking and saying these things, but I think that we have to become smaller. Uh, mm. This imperialistic idea that we have to just take over and be bigger doesn't work. It would be better for us to just become smaller so that the decisions are made in a smaller scale. Uh, mm. So if we can talk about making decisions inside of California and not federally, that would be a lot easier to be able to say like, oh, well, I can, I can maybe think of ideas that are going to help 39 million people. That's how many people we have in California. Right. It's a huge thing. I mean, that's a country. I mean, the I UK know. is 70. It's barely, know. you know, smaller than the UK. Colombia has 45 million people. Like we are barely bigger than wow. the entire yeah. UK. California's, California's uh, economy, if it were a country, would be the fifth economy of the world. Like this is a ginormous place. That just happens to be inside of a bigger place. So what does it look like to make things a little bit smaller so that we can guarantee mm. if we make decisions at such large levels, if you're making decisions yeah. for Europe as a whole, then a lot of people are going to be left out of the conversation. Yeah. So what, what, how can we ensure that we're having smaller conversations where more people are represented and where more people are able to say, like, this is actually something that affects me directly because this, I cannot make decisions for Kentucky. I've never been in Kentucky. I do not know how people live in Kentucky. I do not know what people need in Kentucky. And I mm. shouldn't be making decisions for Kentucky. That's just the way it is. I, yeah. I shared an article a little bit ago, a couple of months ago with uh, patrons about how most people in urban areas have never taken the time to actually talk to rural America. Mm-hmm. And, and we're all guilty of that, of that right? Yeah, rural America, like we think, oh, rural America, they are just ignorant. No, they are not ignorant. They have a different lifestyle and they have different yeah. problems. And we don't get to diminish those problems. Mm-hmm. The problem is that we continue to make like decisions that are so wide and so big, decisions for the whole of America right. that are unavoidably going to affect people in the smaller spaces. So if we could move towards societies that are a little bit smaller and let them make decisions on their own, that's why I don't like um, nonprofits that have the, that, I mean, the only nonprofits that I like that are doing international work are nonprofits that are like, listen, these are the resources that we have and we want to put them at your disposal. But the nonprofits that go, hey, these are the ways that things are done and we're going to make them this way. Those are not helpful nonprofits because they are not taking into account the society that they are into. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's imperialistic and it's, you know, it's, it's white supremacy, it's, imp- it's empire. So what does it look like to let people be, recognize where there are more resources and start saying like, okay, we can partner with one another without me, um, because I'm bringing the resources doesn't mean that I make the decisions. Yeah. Right. And yeah. we say, okay, I have an excess of resources and you have, you have your people and you are smart. How can we partner with one another what does partnership look like where i don't make decisions for you and you don't make decisions for me but we share resources with one another um that requires also a high level of healthy people mm-hmm. because then we have yep. to we have to make sure that i am not abusing you and you're not abusing me uh yep. and that we trust one another uh so it's it's messy and it's going to be a lot of work but i think it's possible you know yeah. it's fine no it is. Be- it is 
give it 200 years so we won't see it <laughs> we'll um, get there we will get there yeah. oh, sorry my dad's calling me but we oh, no so what if we if we don't imagine it now we won't see it in 200 years no if we don't start imagining it now and starting to say oh my gosh what part of you want to take it what no i don't he, are you sure i think he's right outside he just needs to, he's fine oh, okay um if we don't if we don't imagine it, if we don't imagine the society that we want to live in, if we don't imagine what I call heaven on earth, if we don't imagine it, we won't ever have it. And the problem yeah. with toxic Christianity, going back to toxic Christianity, which is kind of our lane, is that it tells you that it won't exist. Oh my God, mm. sorry. Is that it tells you it won't exist. The problem with toxic Christianity is that it tells you that heaven on earth won't exist. And the only place where you're going to get it is after you die. So yeah. it you it, it tells you don't even imagine it don't bother it's not going to happen uh when when the invitation that i see of jesus and the invitation that i see of the prophets and the invitation that i see even inside of judaism is no imagine it it's possible we can do it and heaven happens here and 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 the the work of being he- like the work of the church is to be heaven to become heaven on earth for the whole world that's why christianity continues to be something that i am even remotely interested in because those ideas and those notions um, resonate with me. And I love that. Yeah. And I think it's possible. Uh, but if we convince that it's not going to happen and we have to wait until we die, then it doesn't matter how we live here. It doesn't matter how we treat people. It doesn't matter what we leave behind even. Because at the end of the day, I'm promised heaven, right? Yeah. If I just raise my hand at the end of service, I'm promised heaven. If right at, before I die, I say, Jesus, save me, I'm promised heaven. Mm. And that that teaches you to have a really shallow life where you don't yeah. understand the concept of descendants and ancestors and that everything we do is going to have a consequence, an yeah. eternal consequence, not because you're going to live for eternity, but because the, the, we're going to leave something behind for our descendants. So, yeah, there is an eternal concept here, the concept of whatever Augustine wrote in the fourth century is affecting Christians today. That's yeah. eternity. That is the concept of eternity that I'm willing to even consider. So, yeah, mm. Augustine continues to be alive, not in the best ways, too. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I do not want to be remembered for being an Augustine, right? You you know, like, you hope that, like, a thousand years from now, people are like, look back, look at what Joe did. Like, this, we are here because of Joe. You do not want them to be living in a terrible place and saying that, right? I mean, of course. But it's, oh, right. gosh, absolutely. All leave, even if they don't remember our name, we all leave a legacy behind. That's how and we operate. That, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the, when people ask me like, what do you want to do in your life? Leave a good legacy. Yeah. You know, I want to yeah. leave a better world for my descendants. That's yeah. it. That's all I care about. I want to leave a better world for my descendants. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean, I don't mean my biological descendants, of course. Yeah. Just my humanity evolving, growing and being better. I want the world of the future to have a better existence than I've had. And I've had a great existence. And, you know, it's not to even diminish that, but this could be better for other people. I think that's the danger of this concept of escapism and, and getting to heaven and this idea of like, well, ha- the earth is just like, it is what it is. It's not that great. It will never be good. Our goal is heaven. Like there's not really this mindset of, well, maybe we could be trying to make this a bit better. Maybe like, there's no point, right? That's like, ah, your kids, your life's going to be a bit hell as well. Like that's just earth, you know, but you're going to go to heaven anyway. So it's fine. Try and get some people on board. That's how they explain evil, right? That's how they explain mm-hmm. the problem. Of- it's like, well, we're on earth and Adam and Eve ate of that thing. And then that's just the way, that's what we have to expect here. Right. Like you can't expect better here. And so what, like, how are you even encouraged to try to do better? 
you yeah. know, and the only way that you can make the world better is just ensure everyone becomes Christian so that when they die, well, that doesn't make the world better. We've proven that. Right. We have absolutely in 2000 years proven that having more Christians in the world doesn't make the world better. Yeah. What we have to do is have more conscious people and conscious people can be found in any faith adjacency in any belief system or lack of belief system. Uh, conscious people are just humans that are chosen that have chosen to heal instead of continue to cope. Mm. Um, and I, it's beautiful. if I, if I, if I were to um, rate it, I think that it's actually the most religious people, like the most attached to the religion, the most resistant to healing because it has to, it requires for you to admit that your faith is not enough and mm. they can. Wow. I, I, can a hundred percent agree with my uh, my empirical evidence of and uh, maybe my more anecdotal evidence, but I, I've seen empirical evidence that points to that as well. There's there's different faith measurements, um, different scales that you can use to measure people's faith, and traditional uh, fundamental uh, religious people always score very low on uh, on maturity of of, of um, consciousness of, of of being aware and and, and self aware. Um, so it, it's there, like we we see it. When we just yeah. sit down and look and observe, um, wow! You have the data for that. That's totally like how you operate. You have the data and the numbers. I, I can't help so but have some data. I always have some data for it somewhere. Joe, you are honestly one of my absolute favorite conscious people. Uh, if, if there are people in this world that are awake that I am looking to, you are definitely one of them. And I'm so thankful that you're in this space doing this work. I'm so privileged to be just in the same room, you know, at least electronically. Um, it's such a joy to have you on, to have these conversations. Um, I really appreciate the conversation, the space that you're creating. Can you plug what you're doing a little bit? How do people connect? To be honest with you, I'm going to be amazed if people are listening to this that don't know you. Like, I mean, there's maybe a handful, but I mean, I, I'm always sharing your stuff. I'm always telling people to follow you, but hopefully um, some people have tracked this down. If they've come across this, they don't know who you are. Instagram, your number one place to be. Is that, is that, yeah, I really share most of my stuff on Instagram. I I talk a lot on Twitter and share a lot of the things that I talk on Instagram on Twitter, but on Twitter, I'm a little bit more sassy. So that's kind of fun because it just goes with the, you know. Platform. Yeah, yeah, that's the platform. I need to get sassy. back on Twitter. It's fun. Come back. I'll, you know, I'll welcome you. We'll talk. And we'll make fun. <laughs> um, no, so I'm on Twitter, but I'm a little bit more sassy there, which is really fun. I Somebody told me, have I told you this, that, Instagram is LA. It's like Los Angeles. Um, okay. Maybe this will make sense for people in the UK, but maybe it will. Uh, Facebook is Florida, but Twitter Facebook is Facebook is Florida. If there is Facebook anywhere is- there is Florida, it's Facebook. Oh, yeah. Jesus. So Facebook yeah. is Florida. Instagram is LA where people care a lot about what they look like. And there is a lot of optics and, you know, you're very careful about what you're writing. Uh, but Twitter is LA where everybody kind of has their own thing and people are more sad. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Twitter is New York City. New York. Uh, People are yeah. more whatever, you know, and there is a little bit more of a irreverence almost. So I love it. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So I play to those. I play to those dynamics in all of these yeah. social media, but I mean, all of them, um, the one that I engage in the most for sure is Instagram. And that's awesome. where I talk about. Uh, and I, of course, have a patron and all of those things, but you can yeah, find yeah. In my page. No, that's awesome. People, there will be show notes with Instagram, Twitter links, Patreon links. Get doing it. Get supporting Joe as well. Um, like doing work for free is, is, 
it's a scary venture at times and it's it's in my opinion it's one of the most admirable things people can do um I'm not just patting myself on the back for saying that but i just i i mean all of people that do it i just i genuinely uh think it's it's such a brave thing to do with kids as well i frequently am terrified about having kids because i'm like what will that do to my mindset my psychology <laughs> like i don't even know because i'm pretty shoot from the hip as a very controlling person right now my control is going to jump a whole nother level when I have kids. I know it. I'm ready. Um, so I, I just. Maybe yeah. both will happen because there is a lot of things that you can absolutely not control. I'll have to let go can. of. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. So let's just figure this out. But yeah, absolutely. Children, children change dynamics for sure. Yeah. No, they will. They will. I, I do want to say thank you for having me again. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you anytime. And I, I mean, we don't have colleagues officially, but we are colleagues, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it feels course. like it, right? Yeah, for sure. So I'm I'm happy to be your colleague. I love to do this work alongside you. And um, I feel like I have an ally in you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. space for me too. Oh, well, thank you very much, Joe. I hope you have a wonderful day, a really um, a great Christmas and everything. I'm sure we'll catch you on the other side at some point. It would be great to have you on again. I'd, I'd love to have you on frequently. Um, these conversations are so great. I mean, we didn't even, uh, for people that don't know who Joe is, we did an introduction like conversation like six months ago or something. Go yeah, back and find that. We just, you were like, hi, hi. And then we started talking. Oh, I, I've been talking about this all week to my wife. I'm like, I have got so much to ask Joe. And I don't even know if I asked half the things that I had in the back of my head. I made a list somewhere and I don't even know. Um, but I was like, we are going in. We are, we are doing this. I mean, I know you as well. We can do small talk, but we're not small talk, right? We, no, we want to dive into this stuff. We love it. And so I, I figured let's make the most of it. So, and I appreciate you giving me so much time as well. Um, it's been fantastic. But Joe, I love you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, have a good one. Yeah, I'll let you know when this comes out. It'd probably be late next week or the beginning of the week after, I think. Yeah, but I'll let you know. But have a happy Christmas and then say hi to yeah. you. I will do. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, so that was Joe Lumen. I hope you enjoyed that. Guys, I cannot stress this enough. Go follow Joe. Uh, check out her stuff on Instagram, Twitter. Um, she's just Joe Lumen. So it's J O L U E H M A N N. And check out her Patreon as well. It's patreon.com slash Joe Lumen. Um, I really recommend you follow her, support her, um, just feed from her. She is putting out such helpful information, um, really great resources. And um, it, it's making a difference in my life. It's making a difference in a lot of people's lives as well. I mean, just the meteor, meteoric growth she's had since um, the first podcast we did with her um, to now, she, she's just blowing up. Um, it, it shows that she is changing people's lives and helping. And, and I, if you haven't been following her, I'd really encourage you, um, make sure you're following her. Um, something else I'd encourage you to do if you are deconstructing and you are going through that process, if you feel lonely, isolated in that process, is check out the deconstructionnetwork.com. It's a free resource that helps you find other people that are deconstructing in your local area uh, and shoot them a message. And who knows, maybe you become best friends, maybe you don't. It, it, you know, it, it never hurts though to find other people that are going through a similar journey. Um, especially something like deconstruction, which can cost us so much. It can um, result in a lot of lost relationships. And so um, the opportunity to find new connections and relationships is such a huge one for those that are deconstructing. And, and so 
um, do make use of that resource. It's completely free, thedeconstructionnetwork.com. We're also doing research through the Deconstruction Network. And actually, we just put out our first paper, our first report um, from that initial study we did back in May. Um, so you can find that at thedeconstructionnetwork.com slash research. Um, and there's some really fascinating results in there um, that I'd encourage you to check out. Um, that's about it for me. I don't have much else to say. Like I said at the beginning, if you want to support what I'm doing, if you appreciate that I'm doing all this stuff for free, please check out my Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash phildrysdale or phildrysdale.com slash partner. Either one of those will get you access to our private discussion group. It will get access to uh, monthly Zoom calls and other bits and pieces and some other perks for people that give a little bit more every month. Um, there's some like the regular Zooms and things like that or, or Skypes with me. Um, but yeah, uh, I really appreciate every one of you. I really am thankful for your attention. I appreciate you listening to these long, long podcasts. I know I make long podcasts because I like long podcasts. Uh, I want to have long conversations with amazing people. Uh, but those of you that consistently listen to these twice a week as well, there's a lot of them. Um, you are my heroes. I appreciate your attention. I appreciate um, and, I'm, and I'm privileged to have it. Um, I don't say that lightly. Um, as always, I'm here on Instagram. Just shoot me a message anytime. It's just Phil Drysdale. I love to talk with people about their journeys, help them on their journey, um, help them process their deconstruction. So please do DM me if you need someone to talk to. All right. I love you all. I'll catch you next time.